People are always asking me if I know Tyler Durden. We see a deadly sin on every street corner, in every home, and we tolerate it. We tolerate it because it's common. It's, it's trivial. We tolerate it morning, noon, and night. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Director's Club Podcast. I'm Jim Laskowski. And I am Patrick Capole. Yes, us. you are. <laughs> Thank you. Wow. <laughs> Confirmed. Look, yes. you don't have to take it from me. Uh, we have it second. The rumors are true. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, can, can, Ren, can you put it in motion? I am Patrick or Paul. <laughs> yes, okay. I am the, the very fortunate guest, Ren Brown. Yeah, it's a law. Well, it's a law now. That is Ren Brown. You remember him, of course, from our Wachowski Brothers episode. You know him, of course, as uh, probably the main writer on uh, Chud.com. Woot. Yeah, exactly. Woot. Uh, you know him from appearing on other podcasts, perhaps. I don't know. Maybe you, it's went, happened. Maybe you went to school with him. You know him because <laughs> you, know, you know him because uh, you called him a fag once in school. Oh, I don't know exactly how it worked out. Uh, how, I like how much you're trying to mine from my pond shallow resume. <laughs> how many places people would know me from? Which you is known from the grocery on. store. After this, but after, regardless, after this, you'll know him from this because he's a great guest, and we're talking about a great director, David Fincher. Yes, um, for real. And Ren definitely was very enthusiastic about covering Fincher, uh, so I know I have no doubt that he Word. is going to bring the thunder the same way he brought it for the Wachowski Brothers episode. By the way, if you haven't listened to that, that was a that was a pretty great episode. It was, yeah, because that was sort of the that, that was, an, it was it's it's kind of a great moment when everyone realizes because uh, I think it was both me and Jim's first time seeing Speed Racer. Mm. right yes it was (laughs) we were just like oh shit this is a whole other thing so that was fun um i I do want to get a little business out of the way we've actually been getting a lot of emails i noticed hey our episodes are actually just are so long that reading listener mail is uh just unless it's really on point and it's really something that we're we're on to address which you know don't be discouraged if, if you think you can you know send something you're interested in a future director please do but uh, we're really not going to read all the mail, but we love getting it. Um, I'm gonna, well, we're not going to read the mail on the air, on the, uh, yeah, on the show. On the air. Um, but I, we love getting it. I'm going to work harder on uh, responding to it. Yeah. And now that I'm now that school is over for the school's out for the summer. Yeah. Then I can uh, also do that as well. And if uh, you're wondering, you know, my 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 throat isn't up to par today. Mm-hmm. I'm just getting over a cold. But actually, I think I should just be honest and say that. Patrick felt like destroying something beautiful yeah. and punched me in the throat, mm-hmm. which is why my voice oh, is no. deeper than normal. So <laughs> You apologies. guys don't know this. Jim has a really beautiful throat. Oh, my God. <laughs> his Adam's apple I don't, I don't want to ask how you know that. His Adam's apple is just so supple in the degrees. I don't even want to get into it because it's just going to get pornographic. But uh, mm-hmm. what we should probably get into is what we watched this week. Yes. Maybe one of us washed out of Africa The Milagro bean feeling warm Legend of Bagger Vance 
An education about Schmidt or shall we dance? Waiting that divine rescue dawn or eastern promises. What did we watch this week? What did we watch? What did we watch? What did we watch? What did we watch this week? What did we watch? What did we watch? Did we watch the movie through illegal means? Or maybe we just watched it on Netflix, instant VHS or DVD. I wish I could get out to the theater more. I hardly have any money to go see all the new movies on the big screen. I know I probably will anyway. Well, hurry, I'll go to Redbox if I got the shakes. So maybe I can finally watch out of Africa. Um, Ren, what did you watch this week? Well, uh, the most recent couple of films I've seen were, I had to, of course, for review purposes, see uh, Battleship. And, oh, uh, boy. And in terms of catching up, just for posterity's sake, I did go and uh, endure Dark Shadows. Oh God! Oh really? I was gonna say. Indeed. I was gonna say. Oh good, he brought two. At least we won't have to talk about a bad movie. <laughs> <laughs> um, Indeed. Which one do you feel you can talk the most about without without punching someone in the throat? Well, Battleship. I actually published a extensive review. Um, so if people give a shit what I have to say about anything. Uh, you know they can certainly go check that out. Uh, the, it, it can all be summed up in my my basic pull quote, which was "Congratulations, Peterberg, you sank my give a shit." Um, <laughs> nice, nice. I, I would say the only notable thing worth kind of pulling out about Battleship is that if you thought it was just a cynical uh, sci-fi alien naval battle movie with the lo- Battleship logo slapped on, you were wrong. It is an adaptation of a board game in every. <laughs> possible sense <laughs> so there is that Would be you... it the peg missiles the alien shoot or the fact that this little force field is created by two parallel glowing blue plates oh shit really <laughs> to a 35 minute sequence where they are calling out numbers on a grid system to shoot missiles blind and somebody on binoculars is yelling hit or miss so there, there is everything that they could possibly scrap out of the property of Battleship is present in that film. And then there's another hour and a half taking it to, you know, a two-hour and ten-minute movie. Except so, nobody screams, you sunk my Battleship. Uh, the line is acknowledged. <laughs> it's, oh. not, it's not yelled okay. like you would think, but the, the, uh, the, the expectation of that line is acknowledged. The, okay. the sad, um, the, 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 but to be fair, what's really exciting to Milton Bradley fans is the, what comes after the uh, credits um, when Liam Neeson uh, turns to Rihanna and goes, Diagonal, pretty sneaky, sis. And it's like, ooh, are they going to do a Connect Four movie next? Oh, if only. Well, I've I've seen. I believe it was Duncan Jones who said that clearly they're going to keep making these movies, and then we're going to have an Avengers style uh, collapse of all these properties. Candyland, so anybody? Hungry, hungry hippos, Connect Four, Battleship nice. crossover. Uh, 
that wow. I assume will be led by when Ridley eventually makes his Monopoly movie. That'll kind of be like the Iron Man of the <laughs> So, but, when, I, I thought the, like, the word, the early word was that this was a Navy movie that Peter Berg wanted to make, and in order to convince the studios to make it, like he said, oh, we could base it off this property. Is, so I'm guessing that's not true. I don't know what the seed of it was, but Peter Berg wanted to make a Michael Bay movie, and that's what he made. Okay. Uh, oh, man. That's a bummer. It is, it is unabashedly aping Michael Bay to the golden hour shots of military hardware silhouetted against a golden sun to <sighs> the way, you know, space national disaster is juxtaposed with Joe Schmo on a bar talking to his buddy, that kind of shit. Like, every bit of it is dripping with secondhand uh, Bay and Schneider style. I, I wish he would have done movie. a more satirical approach to a Michael Bay movie or done something like we were talking before we started recording with with uh, what Joseph Kahn did with, with Torque. It would have been nice if Peter Borg would have brought, like, a goofy, playful sense of humor to it rather than taking it seriously. Which is what I was kind of hoping for when I heard that Battleship itself was going to be made into a movie. I just want to bracket in a Star Trek joke here for Peter Borg. Yeah, no, we Borg. Can, we'll edit it in later. We'll sure. as, it will assimilate. Um. <laughs> nice. <laughs> the cutest move on, though. Yeah, yeah, puns are futile. Um, Jim, what did you... Uh... What did I watch? Yeah. Well, I know we've, we've been inundated with emails asking, what did you think of the Avengers, Jim? Well, really quickly... I just want to say it's awesome. Yeah. And uh, uh, kudos to my co-host here for putting together an excellent bo- bonus episode with uh, Daniel Kibblesmith. It was that a good, was a very nice conversation. Yes, it was a great listen, and uh, I get I whole I wholeheartedly give it two thumbs up. Except I I, I just have one complaint, and it's just minor. Yeah. There was no ridiculously goofy puns at all. Yeah. Throughout well, the entire episode, and no, I was like, was... I was getting the shakes. I was going through withdrawal. Well, it is sort of yeah. You separate Simon Pegg from Edgar Wright. You know, mm. I'm not. I'm not going to be the same thing. I might. I gotcha. I might. I might pull a Paul. I okay. Not, you know. But all right, that's fine. <laughs> or even worse, a run Fat Boy Run. Oh, <laughs> oh no, we don't want that. We don't want David Schwimmer behind the wheel. Yeah. No. Kibblesmith. Oh. Kibblesmith is a great, great guy and is hysterically yeah. funny. And I'm, I'm not sure if I even mentioned this on the, the on the uh, podcast, but you guys definitely need to follow him on Twitter because he makes at least seven hilarious yes. jokes today. He's a he's uh, fantastic. At Smith. But yeah, so thank you. Uh, but no. thank you. I, I, I was, it was a lot of fun to make. So. And as a, you know, as a guy who doesn't really love uh, comic book movies in general, I, I was thrilled with the Avengers. Um, but now let's move on to really quickly a movie that uh, I saw last night uh, that I'd heard pretty good things about. Um, some good buzz, and I'm actually quite the fan of Richard Linkletter. Uh, his latest film is called Bernie, with Jack Black as the uh, title character. And uh, he he plays a funeral director who falls for like he gets, I guess I, you know they have a romantic relationship more or less I mean they start out as friends, um, because he's a funeral director and you know he's 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 a very uh, caring person in general and he's very compassionate and very considerate and very giving to where like he uh, you know Shirley MacLaine loses her husband and he decides that he wants to help her and you know run errands and buy her things and do all these you know just be a, be a a friend to her and then it becomes something more over time and then you know they form a relationship of sorts and then she is kind of a, of a 
of a code. Cunt. That's yeah, the, that's the word you want. Okay, yeah, she's kind of a cunt, uh, very uh, codependent, and uh, I mean she's very wealthy, so uh, you know she, she's able to provide for him, and eventually he be, he feels trapped, and uh, you know this isn't a big spoiler since it's given away in the trailer, but uh, he at some point just sort of loses it and just randomly decides to kill her almost uh, without any sort of premeditation whatsoever. He just can't take it anymore and he feels trapped and, you know, he takes her out and then we sort of learn, you know, mostly about the town's reaction to this crime, which in a way is presented uh, in a very Errol Morris kind of fashion with these uh, interviews with the actual inhabitants of this small town in Texas. Um, but I mean, some people, some of the interviews are with a actors and some of them, some of the interviews are with the actual people in the town, which is a really interesting approach. Does, does the movie acknowledge that it, that it, is it, is it like a, like, like the movie badass where it goes between a, a fictional narrative and sort yeah. of documentary? Yeah. Uh, um, I don't know if it's specifically like the, you know, the, 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 the not the title cards, but the text on the screen, uh, does it, does, um, Ren, do you do you recall if they actually like identified this person and that person as the actual owner of you know like a hardware uh, store or? I I think some of them are fictionalized, uh, yeah. possibly, and then some are not. Uh, but I think for the the vast majority of it are actual people. But obviously, like Matthew McConaughey plays you know the sheriff, and he's oh, obviously yeah. fictionalized. <laughs> But just random, I think people that aren't involved directly with the case, uh, townspeople, the gossips, are all genuine folks. Yeah, and their reactions to, you know, recalling what Bernie was like are some of the biggest laughs I've had in a long time. And then, of course, their response to being a murderer, it's like they're in denial because he is such an incredibly warm and uh, uh, selfless person to, you know, and the, the town is almost like, you know, they're just t so taken aback, not only that this crime has taken place, but that he would do it. But at the same time, they're, they're also saying, well, you know, she was a cunt. <laughs> they're like, they were just saying that, she, oh, she had it coming to her. Oh, I would have killed her for five bucks. Like, just the, the sort of quirky, you know, response to, uh, you know, a crime that's taken place is really um, sh shocking to hear at times, even though it's, you know, it's also much like the interviews in something like Gates of Heaven. They're, they're just so insanely uh, uh, quirky in, in a way that's kind of like, man, I, I can't believe this this person really has, you know has this feeling towards towards a crime that's taken place but i mean it, it's kind of There's funny a delightful southern yeah. charm to the humor it's very very much steeped in, in a specifically texan sense of humor and right. a little bit of your kind of uh church going southern hypocrisy in that you know that somebody is nice and you can kind of understand what's going on you know you don't necessarily condemn them to hell yeah and, and sort of jack black's um, naivete is kind of, uh, I, th I was, uh, you know, as I was watching his performance and thinking it was just one of the best, probably the best performance he's ever given, I was reminded a little bit of, uh, what Matt Damon brought to, uh, the informant and sort of oh, having this, sure. this sort of like yeah. wide-eyed, 
you know, optimism and, oh, everything's going to be fine and, you know, just not ever thinking that something is going to go wrong and just that sort of blind optimism about every little thing that they get involved with is kind of, uh, it's kind of, um, charming and also just strange to experience because you're just thinking, how can, how can he put up with her? I mean, how can he can just consistently, you know, deal with what she's, you know, doing to him? And, you know, there's a scene in particular where, well, she just literally locks him in the, you know, through, through the gate you know, he can't even leave. He can't just drive away and leave her. He sort of, like, kept her prisoner. So, in a way, like, they sort of bring that into perspective within the story. And then once we get to the actual court scenes of, you know, the defense, that's they're trying to justify why he murdered her <laughs> by saying, yeah, she would do stuff like that. Yeah, she was a manipulative bitch. And it was just really crazy to sort of experience the aftermath of the... Of the uh, of the murder and the courtroom scenes are, are really well done as well. And Matthew McConaughey is just, he's, he's awesome. He should just always play this kind of role. I mean, he's sort of obviously steeped in that, uh, um, Texan tradition and he knows it very well. And he's worked with Linkletter and, you know, obviously such a iconic role in the past with Days and Confused. And, um, I haven't seen a couple of more recent Linkletter films like me and more Orson Welles, but, um, I think this is up there with one. It could be his best film, probably since School of Rock, and uh, I highly recommend it. It's it's a it's a very funny and strange true story that uh, definitely, if you're a fan of the informant or even some of uh, you know like a movie like Gates of Heaven, you'll get a lot of out of out of it. I think. So yeah, that's Bernie by Richard Linklater, a director I'd be very interested in covering maybe next year at some point because. I have a lot to say about uh, some of his, even even like uh, Waking Life, uh, Scanner Darkly, Slacker. I think all those are really interesting experiments done right, whereas other people have kind of disagreed about that. So I'd be interested in having those discussions again in the future. So what's on your mind? Um, do you well? Do you, do you guys remember the uh, the first time you saw The Ring? The uh, the remake, the American remake. Oh yeah! God damn you, Jim! <laughs> for the listeners, for the listeners at home, I already asked that question, uh, and we had a problem with the connection, so we had to restart recording. And I just said, "Look, I'll ask the question again. Pretend like you didn't see that question coming." And Jim, fucking hammed it up over here. Can't help. It. Fucking Anthony Hopkins over here with the question. Oh, um, chew that scenery, Jim. Yeah, exactly. Yum. No, because I, I I saw the I saw the uh, remake of the Ring recently. Now, Ren, uh, as, as I already know, because uh, we I asked this question, <laughs> right, you have not seen the Ring. I have not. I missed it as a young man. Was there any... when did, what what year did that movie come out? Two thousand two. Okay, so yeah, I was a teenager and completely missed it and uh, have never caught up with it. Did you just have no interest or just? I wasn't a huge horror movie fan in my early teens. I I, uh, I didn't pick that up till a little later. All right. Well, uh, yeah, because I, I was with my girlfriend and she was obsessed with it because she was, I think was maybe like ten or twelve or something when it came out, and uh, she was very dark, you know. So <laughs> she, she was one of the, she, you know, like this. Oh, Samara got um, a lot of sun. You mean you? What's that? Got a lot of sun. You mean yes, yes. Um, she was an African American. Uh, and like oh. most African Americans, she loves Gore Verbinski. 
And uh, no, so we watched it again, and it's and it's funny because the ring is kind of ground zero for the hatred, like the, what eventually spawned Saw and Hostile and Devil's Rejects. This sort of man, fuck all these PG thirteen horror movies, man. Mm-hmm. Oh, like like there was a point. Remember, you actually remember like when Wedding Crashers came out, and people were like, it's kind of refreshing to have this hard R comedy, like. <laughs> Well, uh, American Pie came out in 99, you know? Well, American Pie didn't say fuck nearly as much. Yeah, true. Like, like there was a time when there a was selling... was pie-fucking, though. When, there was a time when, like, a selling point was that they said fuck a lot, or, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and The Ring does, is definitely, like, PG-13 feels like it's for kids. Like, uh, number one, uh, the videotape in question, like she puts in the videotape and you mostly see it. It cuts back to her reaction like once or twice, but you mostly see it unedited and it is very creepy, legitimately like so fucking creepy. And, um, and once you already know the story of what it means and you finally see the videotape and you go, Oh shit. And then she gets the phone call. Like that is the perfect way to start a horror procedural. Mm-hmm. Like that is definitely like I want to know more. I want to know what the hell's happening. There's a ticking clock. Like it is a good setup for a movie. Oh, I completely agree. Um, What's even more creepy is that the, the the woman in in the video looked exactly like my um, at the time my girlfriend's mom. Oh shit! So that made it doubly yeah. creepy to watch uh-huh. and show to her as well. So that so that point when she looks right at the camera and her eyes get wide, you thought like, "Oh shit, she's judging me for masturbating." Or exactly. Like, <laughs> or even just having sex with yeah. with her daughter. Yeah, she's. I know what you fucking did last summer. Um, My daughter. Yeah. No. Um. So like, I think it start. Actually, I don't think it starts strong because the opening scene with uh, Amber Tamlin. I like the opening scene. I, I know you like Amber Tamlin, and the act, <laughs> I like the opening scene. No, the no, it's horrible because it? the opening scene. Well, tries, I haven't watched it in a lot of years. It tries so. to establish like a sense of dread within thirty seconds. Like, 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 like the the analogy I used before when I was describing it is like dread is is sort of like like chili. It needs to be kind of slow cooked and it needs to simmer and it kind of, like flavors need to build. And this and like the opening of the ring is kind of like someone just opening a can of Wolf Brand chili and plopping it in a pot and heating it up and going, "There you go, it's chili." Like no, <laughs> like 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 wow. within forty five seconds they are like the music is getting like ominous and atmospheric and they're just like. <sighs> And you can't do that that quickly. Like, you can't set up a, a high-concept premise like the videotape that you watch and then you die seven days later and then mm. try to set, like, that quickly. Um, so I think the whole opening is kind of botched. But, okay, so Naomi Watts watched the video. It's great. And then it sort of falls apart because it really is, a like, people think PG-13 horror movie means it is, it just doesn't have violence. Like, it doesn't have any balls. But really what PG-13 horror is is that it is directed at young teenagers and that everything is going to be spelled out super specifically. And there's nothing there's nothing worse for building up tension than like uh than than like for example, there's all sorts of strange imagery in the video that she watches. Every single time, without fail, despite the fact that we see the video like four different times throughout the movie, every single time an image or a symbol from the movie pops up in real life, it cuts back to a flashback of the video. Like as if oh, to remind you, yeah, as if like, Oh, a ladder. I didn't remember that long part with the ladder in that <laughs> video that, that we watched four times, not 10 minutes ago. Like, 
And it just spelled everything out. And in that way, like, you know, something like Nightmare Nightmare on Elm Street remake is kind of the same thing. It's mm-hmm. It's got gore and it has people saying fuck. So it's technically, you know, R-rated. But it is just like this is for teenagers and it's – and we're going to just spell everything out and be as, you know, and walk them through it as simply as possible. And we're not going to let anything to imagination. Like, there's a lot of... I think that's really annoying. <laughs> and, that, like, I don't like it when filmmakers take that approach. Because, I mean, y- you know, maybe it's because I, you know, grew up not necessarily, you know, watching something like the original Nightmare on Elm Street where, oh, it was all about subtlety. But, like, everything wasn't spelled out for you, especially in terms of you know, having those, oh, let's cut back to this to remind you of something. Yeah. You should be able to put the pieces together on your own. And and they never, there's always some piece of dialogue that is like, don't worry. Heavy handed. Or... Like, and uh, now, Ren, have you seen much J-Horror? Uh, I remember seeing like The Grudge 2, things like that. But no, I mean, honestly, that is a a, a field that I am pretty painfully ignorant about yeah because i've there's something i've gotten interested in because it wasn't too long ago i saw pulse um and pulse is definitely it might i'm not saying it's my favorite horror movie but it's definitely in my top five ever i yes yes i constantly think about pulse pulse is everything that you want j-horror to be in which it's about ideas but they're very kind of nebulous and it's very evocative and you're not exactly sure what's going on but it's not, but the way it pays off isn't some, oh, here's a complicated mythology to tie all the loose ends, and here's uh you know, and here's a quick, cheap edit to a screaming ghost, you know, like, it really, it's all but about... But does the screaming ghost become a happy frog yeah, at it's the a, end? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, exactly. Just like the J, like, just like the J-Horror in, uh, in uh, Cabin, Cabin in the Woods. Woods. Yeah. Um, well, I'll say, um, the little bit of J-Horror I have seen that has been most effective. Seems like it has a lot in common with uh, a lot of, um, I guess, Japanese originating horror video games, where hmm. it's all atmosphere and tone and dread, and not in the sense that you know we're gearing up the violin strings and slowly walking down the hall to get stabbed. It's you're walking towards something where you're just going to see something very unpleasant and terrible. But not necessarily, oh, it's just a dude getting his head whacked off. It's, you know, some twisted image and you know, it, it engages horror on a more uh, dream level. And that's, that's what like, a lot of people were saying I would like the movie Silent Hill because of that. The, the, movie, Silent si- Hill, the movie Silent Hill is very much like an American's interpretation of that. Not saying that mm-hmm. I'm not I'm not a Japanophile who's like all things Japanese are great and all things American are bad, but like it's very much just like uh oh so there's disturbing images let's have barbed wire going in someone's pussy like it's like <laughs> uh, like <laughs> like no that's that has there's no freudian element to barbed wire going in a pussy like that doesn't evoke anything other than ouch you know like uh or shock and and it and it, that's a very that's very true ren because I, that's what you know, sometimes I go, I have manic episodes and I'll go on Wikipedia and I'll just obsess over individual topics. And recently I have been uh, reading a lot about Japanese and survival horror and they're both uh, extremely linked. Um, <laughs> there's because Jap- Japan actually has like a very long history. Unlike, you know, like America, our horror history is pretty much just Poe and, and Lovecraft. And like that's uh, what Lovecraft was American, right? He wasn't English. 
Which one? Um, yes, he he's from uh, the New England. Okay, yeah. So yeah. he's so yeah, and it's and it's those two guys and but and it's not some like deeper cultural thing because it's very new country. There's like a lot of 17th century like mythology of from Japan that is that informs all of its modern day horror movies. Like it's um and so this survival horror and, and and the films all come from the sort of same tradition, which is interesting. But what what's best about it is, again, because they're they come from a land when things were literally fairy tales. It can be very, um, you know, obviously not it predates Freudian, but it, it can be you know very psychological and it can be just very rife with symbolism. Primal, yes, primal. That's mm-hmm. the word I should have used. And evocative at its best. And uh, I I haven't watched the original Ring in a while, but. That is something that, despite the fact that Gore Verbinski, uh, I'm not sure, like, if he doesn't want, like, I'm not sure if he isn't a great director or if he just, like, ha- doesn't doesn't have the desire to sort of pick the fights that someone like David Fincher does. Because he has a wonderful eye. Like, yes. The Ring is a beautiful movie. Um, and, in fact, one of the things I noticed about it, especially after watching all the preparing for this episode, was... Like it looks like a David Fincher movie. It's not as good as David Fincher movie, but it has the same color scheme. Uh, yeah, definitely. As, as, as something like Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, um, or Social Network, which is you know it's very heavy heavy on grays and and browns and and gold and stuff like that. And it's <laughs> and it's and the and camera movement is very specific, and the way he shoots inserts is very specific. The same way like David Fincher shoots inserts, and it's like watching it, it feels like someone. Like it, it feels almost like a, a class in the difference between a stylist and someone who's actually like a great director because it's not in purpose of anything. Um, he and I'm I'm thinking if Gore Verbinski was a David Fincher as character, would he have fought the studio against putting those inserts of uh, back to the video? Like, is it that Gore Verbinski isn't? Uh, you know, isn't as combative as David Fincher notoriously He's is. more willing to compromise. Yeah, more willing to compromise, which is why he gets all these big studio projects, but they're also, you know, clearly not, you know, this, the work of a single auteur. Um, I mean, Gore Verbinski's always fascinated me the same reason Richard Donner fascinated me, which is I'm fascinated by the idea that you can make, like, good movies in so many different in styles genres, and genres yeah. um, without leaving a personal imprint. Um, For sure. So the ring like gets it, it it falls into a lot of bullshit. Um falls but, into a lot of wells. It falls into a lot of wells. Um and uh it just so it's a movie I really want to like because the premise is so strong and because it's beautiful and the performances are pretty good. They're not great, but they're pretty good. But I pretty much like Naomi Watson everything now that I think about it. Yeah. Yeah. What, what was the killer elevator movie she did? Oh my god, I didn't see that. The lift? The was shaft? It? The shaft. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> I missed that one. It's <laughs> a killer elevator movie. Oddly enough, Amber Tamman was also in a killer elevator movie that went straight to DVD. What one was that? Was I that forgot. called The Lift? No. Or was that like Terror had, at 60, it had 60 a, Stories? It had a very bland name. I wasn't aware the, the, death, ele- the death elevator genre was so robust. Oh, yeah. There was mm-hmm. a, there, I've it's seen called it. Blackout. Okay, so that's even different because I've seen... Uh, the shaft. I've seen the lift. Uh, I, I swear, I'm not making up the lift. Have you it, watched Devil? Devil. I have not seen, but there you go. Like <laughs> you don't need the to. Devil, devil yeah. is 
So anyway, the ring uh, has sparked my interest as far as what it does wrong in looking up more J-Horror, and you can probably look forward to hearing next week on what we watched. I'll probably be talking about either the original ring or Tale of Two Sisters or Spiral or I'll something I'll try like to that. watch Pulse within Really, week. like, Pulse... Especially if you have depression, because <laughs> something Pulse does that, like, the only other horror movie I can really name that does this is uh, Hour of the Wolf. It links, mm. it, it like, it finds the horror of existential hair, terror and depression, yeah. and it, like, it, it finds a way to make that dramatic and not just, like, a movie about someone being sad, like, and moping around. Like, like it's somewhere? Yeah, yeah it's not somewhere. <laughs> Um, it finds sort of the bubbling tear under the idea of, oh, there's no God. And Pulse, Pulse does that, and it does that in a very clever way about, tech, you know, and talking about technology, and it, and it abandons sort of its horror. Like, the last act is just, like, a, a depressing apocalyptic movie. Like, there's no, oh. there's not really a lot of, uh, you know, scares or anything to be found. And it's just the way it's shot. Oh, man. Pulse... Guys, I know. You should see the. Uh, I I don't remember it too well, but I remember seeing it in Austin when I was there for South by Southwest. They showed the Eye, which was also remade into a really. Oh, bad, so you saw the original Eyes? That... Yeah, I remember it being pretty good. I need to refresh my memory. It's been like ten years since I've seen it, but um, that had another like apocalyptic kind of an ending to it, if I recall. Mm-hmm. I thought it was pretty effective. I don't think it was great, but. Um, I remember thinking, wow, I should check out more J-horror, and I just never really made the effort to do so. Well, it's, I mean, like a lot of, a lot of Asian films, it's, very, it's, it's often very long yeah. and very slow, and if they don't pay it off, then it does feel like a lot of time wasted. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember specifically feeling that uh, when I watched the original Grudge. I was, I was very disappointed. Juwan. Oh. Uh, I did see the one with Buffy, the remake. Oh, the re- yeah. Yeah, it was bad. Very yeah. bad. But, Most uh, of these remakes are bad. I mean, Ring is at least Ring better. Ring is singular, singular mm-hmm. and and it like and but it's weird because it's it's so divided. Like at some points, like there's a part where Naomi Watts is just sitting on her porch and she's realizing that every single person at the building opposite of her is watching a TV, and it opens with Amber Tamlin giving a little factoid about all the radio waves in the air and how we're losing so many brain cells, and it's like, oh, so is it going? So so is it going to get a little? It's going to be critical of our modern society and how we tune out. And no, no, that's it. Just Aww. those two things. <laughs> like, and then there's a there's a surrogate father subplot and a kid. But I'll never forget the horse. That's for sure. Oh, the horse is great because it's yeah. very, it's a very funny horse death. Goodbye horses. And if you don't like if you don't like horses, like I don't like horses, then you will love that scene and you will watch it about five times in a row with your girlfriend. Have you watched the? Have you ever seen the play Equus or whatever? Equus. 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 But uh, yeah, um, you should. You know, but now that we're done talking about uh, someone who isn't an author, let's talk about someone who is. Who is that? David, David Fincher. Fincher. <laughs> David Fincher. <laughs> I got really aggressive. I know. With an eye for detail and a dark humor, slight taste for the absurd. Did you know that before Fincher started making movies, he directed Janie's Got a Gun? Did you know that before Fincher started making movies, he directed Janie's Got a Gun? David Fincher has made some great films. David Fincher has 
has made some great films Whether it's Zodiac or Panic Room Or the girl with the dragon tattoo Alien 3 is lame, I'm not too hot on the game But Fight Club's great, the best kind of insane David Fincher has made some great films David Fincher has made some great films David Fincher was born in 1962 in Denver, Colorado, the son of a mental health nurse and one of the heads of Life magazine. <laughs> he started making 8mm films when he was 8, but decided against film school, instead getting a job loading cameras and doing other hands-on work for director John Cordy. In 1983, he was hired by Industrial Light and Magic, and later made a name for himself directing commercials and music videos for big names like Pepsi and Michael Jackson, though pointedly he did not direct Michael Jackson's infamous Pepsi commercial. <laughs> In 1992, he was given the opportunity to direct his first feature film with Alien 3 and left it as just as suddenly before editing began. In 1995, he made good with Hollywood with his surprise critical and commercial smash hit 7. But with 1999's Fight Club, his strained relationship with Fox only got stranger and more complicated. The kind of aggressive and in-your-face primal scream of disenchantment and emasculation that probably would make Rupert Murdoch sick into his stomach... Fight Club was a controversial and divisive film that tanked critically and commercially upon release, only to find a second wind as a cult classic. I think, uh, I think where you came into Fight Club probably will define at least your initial reaction to it, because it did at a certain point, um, you know, probably, you know, sometime in the year 2000 become such a boiling point. You had to have an opinion on it. And there was very few people who were in the middle. Uh, and so many people's opinions that nothing to do with the movie and everything to do with how much they thought Tyler Durden was cool. So I thought we could go around and sort of talk about our sort of how we were first introduced to fight club. Um, Ren. Uh, well, I still remember uh, being in an English class in high school uh, I guess it would have been my freshman year of high school and uh, having two friends that were kind of my punk friends, I guess, um, talk about it. And I had heard about it, but I didn't you know, know much. Um, and I think I kind of unfortunately gathered uh, the, the twist ending from their conversation. Uh, and so when one of them let me borrow it and I took it home and I had to watch it in like 30 minute chunks in between chores and shit like that. Uh, I kind of knew the deal from the start, so I never got a, a, a per se pure experience watching it, but it definitely had an immediate impact on me, and I was perfect age to to immediately dive into the you know Chuck Palahniuk's work, which even then you know I, I kind of knew was some of it was bullshit, some of it was not, um, but yeah, the the film. That was one of those first where I, you know, watched it so many times that I started trying, kind of, kind of breaking down the idea of, of filmmaking. That was kind of par- ran parallel with The Matrix, as you know, same year, same movie, or same time where oh, I was doing right. that kind of. Thing. So yeah, ninety nine was a big year for movies like that. Yeah. Very true. Um, Jim, nineteen ninety nine was Real. a huge year. <laughs> um, before like I think a year or two. Before the movie even came out, I was uh, 
just hanging out at my uh, local public library and sitting on a table across from mine, somebody had left a copy just sitting there of the, of the book Fight Club, and I was intrigued by the cover. So I just uh, read the jacket, and uh, I was like, this sounds totally fucked up. I have to read this. And I took it home, and I pretty much read that in one uh, night. And uh, I was really taken with it. I thought it was incredibly original. And um, I, at the time of reading it, I um, couldn't imagine how it could be successfully adapted into, into a movie. And, you know, basically, I'd like, well, there's, even, you know, with my knowledge of film at the time, I was thinking, well, there's going to be a lot of uh, first-person narration that's going to have to accompany the movie, I think. Um, and so I was excited for for the uh, adaptation. I was uh, a huge fan of Seven, and uh, I was excited to see what David Fincher was going to do with it. Had no idea who the... Uh, uh, writer was of the screenplay. Never, I don't know if he had a lot of credits beforehand or whatever, but I just was like, how the hell are they going to pull this off? And <laughs> pretty much within the first 10 or 15 minutes, I, I was, I was, I, I was completely immersed into it in a way that I had not experienced with a lot of movies at the time. And, uh, I, I, I really, it respond. I responded to it at you know. I, I was. I was think I was twenty one when when the movie came out, and I still felt like it was speaking to a time of you know. Well, I wasn't in college. I wasn't figuring out what my life was. I was just working in a video store, and I had no sense of uh, identity in terms of like, well, what the hell do I even want to be, or what you know. I just felt kind of lost in my you know in my own life at the time. So I responded and I identified with the with the lead character, not necessarily to the extremes uh, that he experiences, not necessarily to the uh, anarchy that he uh, you know embraces as the story goes along. But uh, I, I felt at least just the the way the movie was presented was was speaking to me directly, not not necessarily like some of the messages themselves, which you know in a way I felt. Was like, well, you know, this movie is kind of, kind of preaching to us in a way. Like I felt with uh, with Network or something. Or uh, I was reading comparisons at the time when this movie first came out to like The Graduate, as it's sort of summing up our generational disenchantment with things. And I was like, yeah, but I, I also see it as a really sort of personal story of a guy experiencing uh, impotence and self doubt and disassociation not necessarily with just everything in the world around him, but with himself, that he couldn't find uh, a group of people or a thing or an entity that can make him feel connected. So I was sort of looking at it less as a sociological statement as more of like a personal one when I was first seeing it. But um, it's interesting as subsequent view viewings has gone on, I can ha it almost depends on my mood. I can have a that same flashback to when I first saw it and thinking of what this movie meant to me at the time. And then sometimes I find myself fighting with it because of, you know, its tone and its inconsistency. But the one thing that I can take away from it, even today that I had with it when I first saw it was this movie has so much going for it in terms of ideas that 
you know, I, I want to talk to different people about it because everybody can have a different interpretation and different experience and get something completely different out of it in a way that's uh, very satisfying to listen to and talk about. So I, I think it's a, an important film, even with, you know, as the years have gone on and, you know, I've watched it recently fighting with it, but then sort of giving into it and saying, I think this movie really holds up more than I, I thought it would. I think, especially in light of the final shot, I think the final shot has a lot more weight for me now than it did when it first came out. Well, I mean, holding hands with a loved one uh, as the financial institutions of the world around you crumble. It yeah. Actually, like, well, it's interesting. Kind of, before 9-11 yeah, exactly. and before the financial say. crisis. Yeah, right. Which, exactly. I mean, in, in 99, it was sarcastic because everything seemed like it was so good and, mm-hmm. like, everything was so stable and that's why they everyone wanted to just destroy shit. Yeah. And, now, and now it's like, oh, now it, it takes on a whole different meaning. Um. I had like I probably you know in in an early form of what we would we would come to know as the 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 typical sort of internet critical uh backlash effect I personally had like four different backlashes before I ever saw the movie um <laughs> cuz first I heard first I heard about the movie before I heard about the book or anything and I just thought it was about underground boxing and people were like <laughs> oh it's so cool and I was like eh, it's underground but I don't give a fuck so I didn't, and because I, 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 I was, I was, I was that most unfortunate of person who, who was, who was above everything, but also knew nothing. So I was like the kind of person who was just like, oh, Ocean's Eleven, just a bunch of movie stars, but I'd never heard of Soderbergh. Like, you know, like, like I, I was above everything, but I didn't know shit. I was just an asshole. Oh, if only you could write letters to your younger self. Right. And I, I mean, and being, and I'm sure being in a, being an asshole it's, 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 as a as a kid is a big big part of sort of uh being able to understand this movie but um so then uh, finally uh i sort of like just through word of mouth and everything uh, uh i think probably my freshman year of high school so that was probably maybe 2002 or 2001 um i uh i heard about it and someone gave me the book and i read it and uh i was it was like number one is the perfect style cuz i was majorly add and i couldn't you know, I couldn't read things that had much more depth than that. So, and that's probably why Palyanuk is, you know, so, such a big deal when you're, you know, a teenager. But, um, so I love the book, but, uh, I, I had the same, I had this, at the same time, I had this feeling where it was just like, well, the book is great. There's no way they're going to do the book justice in the movie. Everyone's idiots. And then, <laughs> and, then I, and then before I even saw the movie, uh, I read the book again and I hated it because i Somehow, like, I, because, because I misinterpreted it twice. The first time I misinterpreted it as preaching Tyler Durden. Yeah, that's right. And I said, and I, and I was still young and dumb enough to be like, yeah, fuck it. And like, (laughs) yeah, burn everything down. Um, And I was, so that I was that guy. And then I read it again and I'm like, oh, this is, this is clearly preaching Tyler Durden, but this is dumb. Like, you can't have a fucking world like this. This doesn't make any sense. This movie, this book is stupid. Um, so then I finally saw the movie after all that, uh, sort of complicated history. I saw the movie and I go and, and I said, oh, that was pretty cool. But you know, I'm, I'm, I'm still over this. And it wasn't until maybe like seven, no, not that long, but like five years later when I watched, when I read the book and watched the movie again and I sort of began to realize 
it's a lot more subtle, um, you know, and it's easily mistaken for unsubtle because it has literally a narrator looking at a camera and preaching things that have nothing to do with the narrative and everything to do with a, with a philosophy and a mindset. Yeah. Ebert described it as cheerfully fascist. Yeah, well, the thing about it is when you... The thing about the twist isn't that, oh, it's a neat thing to do to narrative and to pull the rug out under the audience, but is ultimately hollow and means nothing like a Shyamalan movie. When you when you realize that he is the same person, those monologues are suddenly become a lot more, a lot less about philosophy and a lot more about a personal disappointment in oneself. Like he's literally mm-hmm. telling himself, what the fuck is your problem? Why do you have this? Like he hates himself. And that's and it and it becomes more interesting because suddenly it's not about the audience; it's about that character and how he feels about himself. Right. And what's sort of interesting about the movie that the movie does so much better than the book is that Marla is like they have a meet cute, like that whole scene where he's following her around and he's <laughs> they're trying to figure out like like that is out of some kind of twisted romantic comedy. And I feel the romance between them is while still kind of maybe a little underdeveloped for the for the film's benefit like it is it is a lot stronger than it is in the book and it's a lot more interesting yeah. um and i do feel that it is what essentially the movie is about is about being able to harness this sort of uh this sort of punk edge you have as a kid you just want to fuck everything up and being able to go look cynicism is good you need cynicism or else life becomes a copy of a copy like everything is just happy cheery and fake and not real so it's about like sort of tempering cynicism and about like uh like learning to incorporate in your life to a to a degree where it's like yeah let's let's do crazy things and have crazy experiences let's let's get into a fight and then it gets into the thing where it's like but don't you know you can't fall into the cynicism trap and then suddenly become a terrorist group like <laughs> which is why fight clubs sprung up after the movie but not terrorist groups sprung up like right. cuz I you know I and people like to you know, and I I will agree that you know people who started Fight Clubs probably don't don't get the full nuance of the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, like I don't think the movie is necessarily saying that like is necessarily decreeing and saying oh fat Fight Club that was a horrible thing. Like I don't think that part is necessarily horrible. I think the part where there's a healthy physical self expression that right. you can draw from that. It's not like uh, where if you decide to start dealing coke you've missed the point of scarface entirely i think uh, he experiences it's a like, more a, complicated. like a catharsis yes and it's and, and such, he does that with the support and too. such great lengths is gone to show that it is a supportive consensual like yeah. this isn't this isn't getting drunk getting to fights at bars this is like <laughs> it's like they, they you know very literally mirror the you know very purposefully they they mirror the support groups with the fight club mm-hmm. and it is so, I at the same I don't feel comfortable necessarily sort of just pointing out and mocking every every bro who is who has started a fight club after seeing this movie because you know what bros have unchecked aggression they need to get out too and if they can find other bros to punch who go yeah <laughs> fucking punch me if you need to that's good good I mean don't sure. don't fucking beat someone to death like Angel <laughs> don't 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 Jared Leto him but. Right. I don't know. I mean, you can beat Jared Leto to Yeah, well, yes. Beat, I mean, now. Yeah. I, back, I think back in 1999, there was still... Jordan sort of Catalano. Up in, you know, he was doing that. He did this. Next year, he did Requiem for Dread. There was still... 
in the air whether he'd be yeah, worthwhile he's, he's acting. Yeah, still a little mileage, I guess. Yeah. Nowadays, yeah, just kill him. But yeah, fuck that guy. <laughs> so, yeah, so this movie's actually, like, really personal for me. And it's a... And, like, that cynicism is how he finds someone else who is also mm-hmm. fucked up. And it's about, oh, I met someone else who's fucked up. And if I can get over my own hang-ups... I can make a meaningful connection with this person, which is why the end image is so powerful. Yeah. Um, despite the fact that them holding hands doesn't have a lot to do with all of the things that Tyler Durden says at the screen, you know? Yeah. It says a lot for, for, for me too, is when you're, when you're saying trying to find meaning, um, like I, I, my initial reaction to Tyler's, you know, speeches, his so his soapboxing, was like man this is so didactic this is so preachy this is like what i didn't like about uh god bless america is that like oh this is just bobcat goldthwaite and him likes i have to get out all these things i can't stand about the world and that always bugs me in a movie but it's that's the thing is like i actually stopped and checked myself you know with that initial uh instinctual response to it and go wait a minute no that's not what this it's not really about what he's saying, it's how he's saying it, and the fact that he's saying something, that he's opening up in a way that he never felt he could before. You have to look at the environment, you have to look at the the circumstances that he's in, and not necessarily think, oh my god, he's preaching to me, or he's, you know, the, you know, the, the audience is going to take this as scripture. That's not it at all. I think maybe, you know, a younger person, a more vulnerable person, might take this to heart. You know, might might, might certainly respond to it as like, well, you know what? Fuck. Yeah, you're right. I am not my khakis and all that shit. Um, and, in, and to some degree, I, I like just the overall, you know, message of, you know, yeah, you are not this, you are not that you, you are more and, to and that. And to his credit, Fincher pointedly has the point where he, where the, the part where everyone, despite where, where, where everyone is parroting back, his name was what was his, what's the Robert guy? Paulson. His Robert name was Paulson. Robert Paulson. His name was Robert Paulson. Like like that is like if there's anything the kind of uh, a kind of yeah fuck the world angsty teenager is going to reject <laughs> it's it, it should be re- you know like religion organized religion or and the he, military right and he, and he or and yeah and he like so it's very clear at that point that Fincher isn't still condoning the behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he makes it, I think he still makes it kind of seductive because that's sort of the point is that it's easy to fall into fuck everything, have no connection. Uh, um, and again, once you realize that Edward Norton and Brad Pitt uh, are the same character, the narrator and uh, Tyler Durden are the same character, the scenes where Tyler Durden is telling uh, the narrator, uh, don't tell, don't tell Marla about me. It's suddenly like about not showing someone who you really are. Like it's yeah. like suddenly it becomes something that isn't just a plot point. It's something that has meaning. Well, there's something I want to ask both of you that even when I first saw it, the main question I had was um, the, the, the sort of issue I had with it was, are we supposed to you know believe that Marla never called Tyler Dirt Tyler by his real name until he has the revelation and calls her on the phone like the entire time they were together was he using a fake name the whole time because you know once he figures out oh i you know i am tyler durden and then he calls her on the phone 
she actually calls him by his name yeah. at that point. And my own like issue of implausibility was like, wait a minute, so she never... But it, remember, at times, Tyler spoke for him. So anytime that she called him Tyler, it could have been Tyler, Tyler, quote-unquote Tyler on the other line. And, okay. and that kind of... Not like, to mention, she does not say his name until he demands it of her. Yeah. And then she starts yeah. casually referring to him as Tyler. Mm-hmm. But she only says his name once he demand like, forces it out of her, and then she kind of vomits out, and, Tyler Durden. And this, it's right. only after that that she casually refers to and him once he's of, already kind of woken up. And this kind of movie, it's like, it it moves, it hurls so fast, and it's so uh, implausible in so many different ways. Oh, sure. That, I'm not actually, you know, saying that's a flaw. It was just a question that mention, I always had. you know, aside from the kind of uh, name we do get by way of the whole Jack... Yeah, I am Jack's whatever paradigm. The narrator remains nameless, and you know, as far as we we know, we're never given the name of this actual human being. We only get the you know charismatic dual identity is the only thing that ever is is granted a name. Hmm. So there is that. Right. Um, I wanted to mention, I think, in kind of defense of or not defense, but I think one of the reasons that this film is so or is, is known so much for, for people that misinterpret it or don't pull the satire from it or, or just are enthusiastic about it for what you, many would interpret as the wrong reasons is because the film is really brave in the way that Fincher often is in that it never, once Tyler has become the charismatic driving force of the film and laid out his philosophies and kind of dictated his ethos, um, which is all in the context of the film, very interesting, and and uh, you kind of get swept up on it. Once uh, Jack kind of wakes up and, and starts acting against that, uh, you know, against his operation, there's never a compelling reason given against Tyler's mandates. We never, you know, hear Jack go, well... The problem with all this is X and Y mm-hmm. and Z, and you can't do this because the world – it's just kind of taken for granted that him blowing up buildings and taking over the world you know, to destroy it is a bad thing. But we're never given a compelling counterargument, so to speak. It's just kind of left to sit. Well, so, Jack, Jack you know, does he, try to fight that – like they're – you know, they're, they're – they're, um... But he doesn't. But he doesn't go into any monologues the way Tyler True. Durden goes into monologues. Right. He, like, right. he has. He he doesn't really, you know, propagandize for the status quo. It's just kind of accepted that the alternative that Tyler is, is offering is is just bad, which you know I would say it obviously is. But the fact that it you know it's it, it's we're never given equal time, so to speak, is I would think why many thirteen year olds and dumbasses would you know right. would not. Catch the satire, and it isn't, and it isn't, and it is not Fincher's fault, right? That like Fincher doesn't have, I don't believe, a responsibility to make sure that his work can't be misinterpreted any more than you know Matthew Weiner has a responsibility for all those people who think Don Draper is like a cool guy and cheer on the <laughs> fact that he is a womanizer and stuff like that, and like oh yeah, he drinks and he just fucks everyone, he's amazing. Like yeah, they're misinterpreting it, but that's I not Matthew so. Weiner's deal, you know. Right. Um, don't shoot the messenger, but we cannot talk about this movie without talking about, we talked a lot about, 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 uh, content, but we can't talk about this movie without talking about form. Mm-hmm. Um, word people love to say, uh, uh, 
this what's what's funny is I started because our next step, the next uh, Directs Club episode we're going to be doing is on Paul Thomas Anderson. So uh, I've been getting some of his movies off the internet, and I was I was I was testing them, and so I watched like the first ten minutes of Magnolia, and which came out the same year as this, and which is probably my favorite part of all of Magnolia, uh, as far as just just dazzling you know form goes, mm-hmm. which and that is the entirety of this. It it very you know very rarely does this movie ever stop to breathe. Uh, uh, this movie is all about momentum and hurling head forward, but not in a, uh, you know, not in a uh, incomprehensible million fast edits. Like everything is super clear. Yeah. Um, which you is, can tell how precise he is. Yeah. Like, even just with, like, I was really taken with the pulse and the rhythm of some of those, uh, you know, sequences. The way they're just airtight together with, like, when he's going through. Um, you know all the things that you get when you're when you're traveling and the it like the the narration actually is like in sync with the uh beat yeah. from from and the there, dust and, brothers and there, and there will, yeah and there will be um and there and there will be a uh like a montage of several different shots and that the final sh- and like the shots will alternate between the camera moving from left to right and left to right or right to left, and then the final shot, which establishes an entirely different scene, will still have that opening movement. Mm-hmm. Um, particularly the... I can't remember exactly what the montage was before this, but the scene where um, Meatloaf first comes to the door, or I don't I think I don't think Meatloaf is the first person door, but the first person door shine, signing up for Project Mayhem, like, when he goes to open the door, it is the camera is like still recovering from all of the movement that happened in previous shots, <laughs> which proves like, Oh, this isn't just something that he made in the editing room very quickly. This is very meticulously planned. I want to talk about David Fincher's inserts. Cause something I noticed throughout, like, I don't know how someone achieved, like his inserts always look amazing. <laughs> like, yeah. And well, the split split second frames of Tyler, mm-hmm. Do you notice those? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's... yeah. They're not. They're they're easy to notice. They're, yeah, they're kind of pointed. Um, I don't think the first time I even noticed them. Yeah, I definitely did the first time. Uh, that was one of the things I I didn't like. Um, I mean, if I had to criticize it, I would say that Fincher, uh, and this isn't necessarily even a good or bad thing. It's just something I I don't like. Is that Fincher has a tendency to rely on state of the art CGI? Yes. With without regard for is I it mean, me or does it look really dated no 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 the, my point is it isn't i'm not necessarily even saying that a movie being dated is bad thing. no it's not but and i'm not saying <laughs> oh it's his job to make sure that his films stand up the test of time forever but uh it's but just if you see I, the way it's u- utilized it's, in something like zodiac as compared to that it's a lot more subtle yeah, yeah. whereas something like this like the shot coming out of the trash can it looks horrible mm-hmm. and stuff like like well the thing about the the entire movie, and this is where the satire gets really subtle, is that the movie is most shot like a commercial when these people are doing their quote unquote homework assignments or their terrorist acts. Like there is nothing in the movie more uh, super commercial editing photography than the first homework assignment montage when they're demagnetizing the VHSs and oh, yes. blowing up the the you know the computers the, and then... uh, most most pointed uh, when the guy with the hose spraying the businessman oh yeah when they're yeah, yeah when they're going out to pick a fight anytime that stuff happens you feel him just flex his uh commercial directing muscles very 
very sharply. And I think the CGI is kind of a part of that. Like the whole movie is shot with a very, very commercial pop sheen. Yeah, that, mm-hmm. you know, is, is its own kind so of commentary. You would, so you would say that it isn't is even that he doesn't care if it's dated. He like being dated is part of the point. The same way if you watched a commercial from 1999 where they were first using CGI. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure he's thinking like, uh, you know, I can't wait for this to to be dated looking. But I don't think that's you know a concern of his. It's right. a part of the visual landscape of the time. And it, it does anchor it in a late 90s, early 2000s kind of, you know, CGI is just starting to kind of get sophisticated a little bit. Um, and it it looks like commercial CGI in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. but you know, that's part of the, the dating process. I mean, and obviously the most pointed part of that is the Ikea sort of tagging when, he, when the yeah. camera pans across his apartment. Um, yeah. I just sure. like something like the pilot light sequence, I just sort of asked, was that really necessary to see? Or was he just showing, and not necessarily like showing off, but what was? But and here's another thing I like because again, if you, if this movie is sort of about celebrating punk rock attitude, but also exploring sort of when it's appropriate and how to mm-hmm. utilize it, like part of punk rock attitude is that Tyler Durden is kind of a like an asshole and kind of a brat and kind of like thinks he's funnier than he is. Like that's Johnny Rotten, you know. And he likes and to eat potato it, chips while you're talking on the phone. And part of it is just like fucking showing off because fuck it, I can. You know, and like it's it's definitely not about being conservative. And if and I feel like uh, a movie like this, David David Fincher has a question about whether or not to be conservative on something. He's going to err in the side of excess. Right. Yeah. Well, I think the Fight Club is, is the first film, I think, where CGI is a huge presence in his films. Because I, I very much rewatched and looked at, you know, looked at these as kind of a narrative of Fincher. So, I mean, before that, you have Seven in the Game, which are really rooted, and obviously Alien 3, which are all rooted in late 80s photochemical effects. Mm-hmm. You know, the game still feels like more of an 80s movie or a super early 90s movie, whereas Fight Club is, is post-CGI. That's taken over. The the way that the camera movement looks, uh, the way this photography, it's like pre-digital digital photography almost like you can see the seeds of what he's going to be doing with red cameras and shit later on but it's you know it's still merged between the two but now cgi is this thing so he's he's kind of toying with it and i you know i give him a lot of credit for it but then there are things you you see it in panic room where he fucking does the digital zoom into the fucking filament of the flashlight and things like that where sometimes it, it Sometimes it edges like a bit into the extreme. Well, the thing about uh, – I would say one of the huge differences between something like Fight Club and Panic Room is Fight Club, part of it is showing off and part of it is seducing you and part of it is making these – you know, this this terrorist be as attractive and alluring as possible. Mm-hmm. So that's very much part of it and that's part of the theme. That's part of the theme and that's how, you know, the form uh, follows the content. Whereas Panic Room it feels like it's sh- it, – feels like he's building a sandcastle with a bulldozer where it's just like this is obviously a one location thriller that is mostly people talking um you know there's not going to be a lot of chasing when your main character is mostly in a tiny room but let me show you what but, i can do but with but these I'm restrictions gonna, but he takes the opposite approach and you can say well that's an interesting way to do it but i don't necessarily think it serves the movie the way that hit the same uh the same choices serve fight club for, for real 
I do want to say that the a point that you guys kind of touched on that I, I definitely want to hit is the 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 rhythm and the momentum of it. And this is a film where he really breaks into that because uh, again, like you don't seven is a procedural. It's it's pretty measured. I mean, you see it a little bit in the 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 chase sequence um, and flashes of it in the game and 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 everything. But Fight Club is just. It's an absolute symphony, and this is why it attracted me so much is because his merge, and this is totally commercial and music video directing, and where his generation, you know, he, you know, he comes from the same generation as Michael Bay and Mark Romanek and uh, Gondry and Jones and all these guys that, you know, all of them were propaganda guys, the, the production company that made commercials and music videos, all from the same company. But he has, I feel like, most successfully merged you know that those sensibilities that you you develop from telling stories in 30 second chunks where every frame of every shot is labored over and the the sequencing of the music is so important you see that here stretched to feature length where like you said camera movements lead from one scene to another um you see there are key changes in the visual style where he's actually fairly stingy with master shots but will bust out a big wide, almost like a key change in the the film grammar as he's shifting the tone or dropping in, you know, a needle drop. Like the Tom Waits song, if you if you watch the sequence of how the narration, yeah. the steady cam, the blocking of the actors, and then the editing of that when Tom Waits' song comes in and the the heavy percussion of that song, everything is in perfect concert and planned out to to frame accuracy. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. Sorry, I just no, it's fine. completely stomped the conversation. No, there. no, no. You, we we stopped it because we couldn't follow up. But that, that's, I mean, that's that's very true. And and it is something that I I sort of realized when I was um, when I was reading about uh, sort of Fincher and I was looking at interviews. It was there's this sort of thing that I this sort of misconception that I always had about directors like Fincher or like Kubrick, where they would, they'll do a take a thousand times um, because they want, and I always thought it's because they want to flatten out a performance or they want to, they, they want to have everything, you know, they want a performance to be exactly right. And uh, perfectionist. And what I would, yeah, well, not just perfectionist, but mostly about like they have a very specific idea of what a line reading should sure. be or something. And if they don't get it, they'll just do, get it again. Whereas, you know, I was reading something with Fincher and he was saying it's not so much about the performances. He, he has faith that his actors can do it and do it consistently. It's that he needs the timing of a m- camera movement. He needs the mm-hmm. timing. He needs the blocking of the person. He needs the lighting to be exactly right. It's and for a purpose. It's not It's not just about performances because he's thinking about the bigger picture, about how it's going to edit together. And he need- So if the camera was, you know, was dollying in a little slow or a little fast, he needs to do it again. Um, you see in Fight Club a lot uh, where he will use uh, performance beats and sometimes other beats, but... He'll punctuate shots a lot, uh, or the shift between, you know, especially in these the end of these montages and things. For I would say, for example, when uh, Marla and Tyler are having sex, and he busts open the door and he's wearing the yellow gloves, and he, you know, he asks <laughs> Jack, "What are you doing?" 
right before they cut away, Marla falls off the bed. Yeah. And, like, a paper drops, and they L-cut the audio from the next scene where you hear a splash. So it's like the movement of that yeah. follows, and then they cut in, and they're... There are examples of that all over. And then one of my favorite things is how the, f- the film builds up so much rhythm and, it, and it's very organic, like breathing when you're holding your breath and then you release or like sex or something where it, it's this rhythm and flow. And there are points when it almost like they build up so much tension that the film can't contain it, which is where you have Tyler staring into the camera and the film wobbles. Yeah, it goes mm-hmm. off the, the reel. film the, itself can't contain it. Or when Marla is committing suicide and it gets that really bouncy beat and they're kind of... Tyler is dancing to unheard music. You know, if you're actually in that scene, it would just be Brad Pitt dancing for no reason. But he's dancing That's to so, the music that we're hearing. That yeah. cracks me up every time I see it. Just like him randomly dancing in a hallway for no reason. Yeah, he drags Marla into that corner <laughs> Brad- as the cops go by and he just snaps his fingers to... The, to a beat that we're hearing and, and, and like the rhythm of it sneaks into the film itself sometimes. I think Brad I mean Brad Pitt has obviously always been super charismatic um but I think he you know I think he grew as a performer after he was famous which is not you know which is usually monkeys? Th- most people don't get a chance to because they'll get famous and then once they're no longer the pretty boy the fact that they don't have they'll the start chops start phoning it in. Yeah, so like you look at something like 12 monkeys you know, he's it's kind of a fun performance, but at the same time, like the twitches kind of feel empty. They don't feel like as natural. Yeah. And like Tyler Durden is like just a perfect role for him where it's his perfect. his natural charisma and the and the I like like the, the, the same way that you can just see you don't see the uh, character like in Ocean's Eleven. You don't see the character. You see Brad Pitt smiling mm-hmm. that he's eating in every scene like you know like right like you you see that he's getting a kick out of it and he gets a kind of a joy out of subverting something and which is of course perfect for tyler Durden. uh he's a perfect just a fucking perfect actor for the role and everything he does in his performance even the parts that you know because i don't honestly i find a lot of the humor which is taken i i, I started rereading the the, the chuck palianuk book and i like a lot of the the lines and the humor is taken directly from the book, and I don't find it that funny anymore. Um, no. So even but even when he's not being funny, like in character, he's just being perfect, and it's perfect yeah. to watch. And I find it with, I find it interesting when he's rescuing her from her suicide attempt. He doesn't say an entire word that whole time. Yeah. Like just from the mo- happen. Yeah, from the and mo- his interaction with the dildo is amazing. Yeah, from well, from the moment he picks up the phone. To where they're, you know, back at, you know, his place doesn't say anything. And he's just so, with those, with just the look and the glasses, he's so charismatic. I, I also find it funny, and this is a total uh, crazy geek thing that I'm about to bring up, but I noticed that in that sequence where he's rescuing her, the 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 the, 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 the soundtrack, the, the, the score that is playing is actually utilizing a beat, a drum sample that probably had been used before, but it's actually from the song Looking Down the Barrel of a Gun, which the Dust Brothers produced. And how does this movie open? Yeah. Tyler's looking down the barrel of a gun. In See? The... Very nice. <laughs> See? <laughs> I mean, it's so... See? I told you, asshole. <laughs> That's another thing that I think Fincher brings from his commercial work. Is that in commercials? The you know when you do a shot, when you have thirty seconds, 
every beat has to have an iconography to it. There has to be some <laughs> lasting image. And by loading the film, I mean, Fight Club is just, even from the production design and how gritty and grimy and the photography is very rich, but it's just a dense film. Like, you feel like yeah. you can peel back, you know, it feels like a flesh and blood film because there's, you know, layer upon layer upon layer of of beats and music and editing and, and production design and, and, and things within frames and things like, you know, when Tyler says, you, when in the, our very first meeting, he asks, do I give you the ass or the crotch? And if you notice, he gives Jack the ass and then he gives the stewardess that he passes, he gives her the crotch. Hmm. You know, little tiny beats yeah. like this that so little things you, you can pick up on over yeah. and over. I would say to pick up. I would say in general, the denser a film, a Fincher film is, the the better it seems to fit his style, which is why uh, this film and Zodiac and Social Network, I think, work so well because he's so good at getting across information in very pointed and memorable ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, where every and he builds it for repeat viewing. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, Whereas something like Panic Room or, you know, God forbid you have to watch Benjamin Button. Benjamin Button, he doesn't, there's not a, like, there's no information at all. Like, it's such an empty movie. It's lifeless. I hope we get, like, ten minutes to talk about it. Yeah, we can talk about Benjamin Button. I don't want to, I don't want to spend time right now, but. We could uh, probably just do a two-hour episode on Fight Club. (laughs) Yeah, um, but I, and I, I, and again, like, he's. And something that sort of, uh, and I again, I always grouped him with uh, Kubrick in my mind. But something that separates him from Kubrick is that he's very good with actors. Ed, yeah, Ed Norton is perfect in this. Like Meatloaf, fucking Meatloaf is perfect in this movie. Everyone is like in most of his movies, the performances are just incredible. Yeah, and Edward Norton coming off of uh, Primal Fear. Well, I mean that it wasn't. It was a, a few years later, but sort of having sort of playing with that expectation from his character is rather interesting. And some, something I sort of realized when we were doing the film so we were talking about all the different Hulks was that like, I don't, I don't find Edward Norton to be a very, uh, in, uh, uh, sort of intrinsically likable person. Like there's something about him that I don't, there's so little, there's something a little off and it, and it allows someone when suddenly he's in over his head and he's Tyler Durden, but he can't get anyone to arrest or anything like it is kind of fun to watch him squirm the same way it's fun to watch Dan Aykroyd fall in trading places. Like, you kind of <laughs> are glad that this asshole is... <laughs> For some reason, I just think that both the combination of his squirminess and Brad Pitt's confidence is a strange, like, messy manifestation of the male psyche. Absolutely. Just the, the, the two of them oh, yeah. together perfectly capture that so well. And the very that's, final... That's very root primal stuff right there, yeah. that double-sided coin. And to sort of uh, get ready to wrap things up on Fight Club, that final shot is just so incredible, and it's one of my favorite shots of any movie ever. And I'm not specifically sure how... how I remember I read at some point it like took them a year or something to come up with to design that shot and execute that shot, and they put so much hard work and effort into it. And to me, it really just speaks to the idea of, uh, you know, growing up and abandoning that inner Tyler sort of angsty teenager that, you know, sort of, um, I, I just, I don't know. I get something out of that final shot that I don't think I got out of the first time I saw it. Like, I just thought it was, that was so cool, man. But now I just see it more as, uh, it's beautiful. 
Yeah. It's like really, it's really touching. I know. (laughs) It's also got, you know, some subtext of, you know, the idea of this, I guess the fear of building something that gets away from you. Right. You know, he, you know, he he went through the hero's journey and, and figured it out and shot himself in the ear where he first punched Tyler and all just shit to win. And then it, like he, he has a personal victory, but he doesn't stop anything that he was trying to stop. Everything mm-hmm. continues on without him. Exactly. Uh, okay. Yeah. Okay. I, no. I lost you guys again. <laughs> oh, no. Totally. We're just letting it sink in. Yeah, man. where is my mind? Um, nice. Now, uh, now, what about all the castration references in this movie? Yeah. Emasculation? Oh, well, yeah. yeah. That's, that's, okay. that's, that's part and parcel. Uh, Penis cut I mean, off, you have thrown a man out the window. With giant tits. Yeah. And again, and I've I've seen like criticism like that is like support groups aren't bullshit. Like like really? Did you <laughs> did you read about Paul Thomas Anderson's reaction to Fight Club? Uh did it did he did he did he hate it and find it uh misanthropic? Well yeah, he actually left and he wrote an angry letter to David Fincher for making fun of cancer, making light of cancer. He was really pissed off about that. But he's since gone on record saying, I apologize, I'd lost my sense of humor, I don't know. I've I've gone back and I've uh, had a completely different opinion about it. I just find it interesting that that same year, and it's probably because Paul Thomas Anderson had dealt with his father dying of cancer, right? That he had that reaction. But of course still. he did. Of course he would. <laughs> and it is. Yeah. It's, and he, and again, I'm not. I'm not making bones about it. It is insensitive. It like to. It is insensitive, and it is. But uh, that is part of it, and that it's part of a lot of Chuck Palahniuk's books are very insensitive. Yeah, I mean, well, I think even from the the thematic point of view, like it's insensitive. It's insensitive, and there are some jokes at the expense. But I mean, part of the point of this movie is that we're dealing with a generation of guys that didn't have a war or whatever, and so they're literally beating the shit out of each other to generate pain and experience and difficulty in their lives and they're tearing things down so that they have something to rebuild so the idea of this guy being a warrior and having to find other people's legitimate pain to like siphon off of because he and his generation don't have any of their own no i mean that's true but so but it is shot for comedy at at their expense at the at the it isn't like that oh yeah i mean the whole that, chloe thing the, is the yeah. first the f- yeah Dark, the first the, f- the sort of the, f- the first bit of information that he's getting across with those scenes is not here's a voyeur like who is so pathetic he needs to experience other people's pain it is the f- the first thing it is is played for is comedy mm-hmm. um at those and uh, but again that's it is fucking punk rock and insensitive and that's that's part and parcel with it and i understand if it if it offends you but you know, my dad wasn't offended when I showed it to him. Yeah, <laughs> and he was just diagnosed with cancer. He was laughing his ass off. Yeah, I don't know. I felt like I wasn't even thinking at the time of that element being like, "Oh crap, is my dad gonna like freak out about that?" No, he always had a sense of humor and shit. Right. And he actually some, loved. I Fight think Club. some people have a gallows humor gene, and some yeah. people don't. It's funny that I didn't even think about two, the the two last movies he got to see that I showed him were uh, Fight Club and The Matrix. Yeah, which came out the same year, and I told him these are two incredibly important films that I think that we'll be talking about ten years from now. And look what we're doing right mm-hmm. now. And Fight Club, it's very important. Same way Matrix was hugely influential. Sure. Fight Club is would we have Edgar Wright? I mean, Space came mm. out in nineteen ninety nine too, but his 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 sense of, of aesthetic was not 
quite i mean it had a lot of whip pan stuff from from something like sam raimi and stuff but uh you can't have scott pilgrim without fight club all right i think we're ready to move on to the second film we want to discuss here because i'm really excited to talk about zodiac dear editor this is the murderer of the two teenagers last christmas at lake herman and the girl on the fourth of july i want you to print this cipher on the front page of your paper he wants his code in the afternoon edition Ray Smith, don't you have a cartoon to finish? The Zodiac Killer has come to San Francisco. Another letter. School children make nice targets. He gave himself a name. Greek, Morse code, astrological signs. This guy's used them all. I like killing people because man is the most dangerous animal of all. Just one do that. I like puzzles. I do them a lot. Got any hard suspects? About uh, 90 an hour. I'm up to around 500. You got four crime scenes. Not a single usable print. You can't think of this case in normal police terms. He's breaking the pattern. Lana said you were a cartoonist. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what are you doing at a gun range? I just want to help. What are you, some kind of boy scout? Eagle scout, actually. First class. Fincher excited fans with the announcement that he was kind of going back to the world of serial murders filtered through the police procedural that he captured so well in Seven. The first of his films to be mostly shot digitally, Zodiac tells the story of the hunt for a notorious serial killer known as the Zodiac, who killed in and around the San Francisco Bay Area during the late 1960s and early 1970s, leaving several victims in his wake while uh, taunting police with letters and ciphers mailed to newspapers. The case remains one of San Francisco's most infamous unsolved crimes, and Fincher went through many steps to interview those involved with the case, along with visiting the locations where the actual murders took place, and out came this incredible film. It did not make a huge dent at the box office, but man, it was a huge uh, critical success, that's for sure. It made a lot of uh, top ten lists that that year, along with uh, There Will Be Blood and No Country for Old Men. And yet, and, was largely ignored at yeah. the last time, if I remember correctly. I believe they so. Camp- they even campaigned pretty hard for it. I know, and that's uh, it's it's pretty uh, shocking to think about because uh, I, I not so much like when you when you realize I mean, it's like, an epic. <laughs> who when you realize that the people who like nominate awards, Zodiac does not have like some hot button issue, and it doesn't have some histrionic performance. Like if, mm-hmm. if, it's if, very subtle. If if uh, if Jake Gyllenhaal's Graysmith was if the movie was mostly about Jake Gyllenhaal Graysmith like losing his family because he's so obsessed with this case, that would be one thing. But like it very purposely sidelines. Like the family kind of disappears uh, you know, without you even know it forms and disappears without you even realizing it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just about the obsessive nature, and and of course its structure is about obsessive nature, and yeah. its structure is designed to exhaust you. But a lot of critics who who just saw it as another serial killer movie said saw it as just an overlong serial is killer there, movie. Is there such thing as exhilarating exhaustion? Because <laughs> I get that from this movie. I'm definitely, certainly. yeah. I'm. I just find it compelling the entire way through. And, you know, people who've complained, yeah, it feels too long, and, oh, there's no resolution, and, it's like, that's that's to mirror exactly what My, happened. And, and again, Fincher loves, and Fincher has kind of a sly, kind of deviant humor, like, he fucking fucks with the audience so much in this that, uh, it, I when I first walked away, uh, mostly what I got out of it was that it was 
was that it felt at times like it was a parody of Seven, in which <laughs> this person is trying to find some kind of grand scheme and meaning behind mm-hmm. these murders, to which there isn't any. And the way that uh, that kind of thriller operates where there has to be a chase scene here and there always has to be some kind of threat of danger to the point where the part where Jake Gyllenhaal is in the guy's basement uh, looking at the movie posters, there is no reason, no reason at all to think Jake Gyllenhaal is in any kind of danger. Like, because his hand, but because one guy's handwriting, like, literally we are looking at a single piece of evidence that connects the guy he's in the basement with to the Zodiac Killer, which is he has similar handwriting. Mm -hmm. And... That is all we have to connect them to, and on and, this one poster, yeah, right. on this on this single poster that, and this is hearsay from years ago. And when Jake Gyllenhaal starts going to the basement, the fucking audience went nuts. Like, what the fuck are you doing? Get out of the basement! <laughs> like they were they treating were going, it like cr- scream. And I was I was cracking like everyone. Yeah, everyone was everyone was terrified, and uh-huh. I was dying of laughter to the point where the people I was with thought I was, like, laughing because I thought the movie was bad, and they, like, they got embarrassed and they hit me, and they're like, shut up. <laughs> like, <laughs> but I just saw what Fincher was doing, um, and it's fat Raising I, the creepy score. And, and it does feel, yeah, it feels like he's kind of tweaking it. What it feels like to me now is, now, since we did the, um, uh, speaking of Errol Morris, like, now that we did the Errol Morris episode, it feels like uh, a fictional version of what Errol Morris's sort of central thesis is, which is the truth is always obliterated. Yeah. And the farther... And, and ambiguous. And you will never find truth. And there, there, you'll never be happy with an objective truth. And there will always be some subjective slant. And you can go crazy looking for it. Yes. And you will try to... You will, you, here are facts that you will try to find some kind of form and reason to, but you are in over your head and you'll never get there. And it mocks the idea of objective truth. And that's, you know, that's what Morris's film do. And that's definitely what this film does. I, I And yet, what's funny is, is uh, I don't know of many films that have a payoff as just, prof- like, quietly profound as Hall looking at Lee Allen in the hardware store. Yeah. Just their exchange of glances is just such a Silent. potent quiet payoff to you know two hours and 45 fucking minutes of dense police procedural and that just two guys looking at each other is you know but only satisfying but even that and we do feel that and it is satisfying but even that fincher will just go on to tweak it and Mm -hmm. he'll have the original victim that we the first person that we see in the movie says is this a guy yeah, I'm pretty sure. Eight out of ten. <laughs> oh, if it was fucking nine out of ten, it would be a world of difference. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then, and then even after that scene, there's closing title uh, that you know. There's a little epilogue that has conflicting facts. Uh-huh. One of the facts presented uh, says that the DNA, DNA did not match right. him, and the other said that as soon as he died, Grace must stop getting threatening phone calls. Like, we'll never know. Yeah. That's and I love that Fincher is ruthless with that. And um, but the do same... you think they got the built their DNA profile uh, with some matter on the poopy dildo? Yeah, that's probably. <laughs> um, um, we should talk about the performances in this movie because yeah. I think they're all really good. I really think like Jake Gyllenhaal is not I mean, an actor I, I, I necessarily think is you know, strong in every case, but I think that sort of having that wide-eyed, 
naivete again. Like I mentioned earlier, he sort of brings that to this, but you can just see him becoming that obsessive. I, I totally buy the transition of like, oh, I just want to help out, and then all of a sudden I'm consumed by this. I but really... it is it is played for comedy. Like yeah. this, this does like it's a procedural for sure. But a lot of like for a majority of the time, it feels like kind of a dark comedy where mm. the joke is on. It's like almost like Brazil, where everything has gone batshit and no one knows what's happening. Like it is sort of because we know that the Zodiac was never caught. We are, are you know, if you if you do know that, um, you know, you you're sort of viewing it as as from this omniscient standpoint as seeing all these absurd people trying to work out their plans, yeah. knowing that all of them will never. Come I was to thinking fruition. Mark Ruffalo is playing it for a comedy. Well, I mean, like the accent. I know people were like, "What? What's the deal with that?" And I'm not even clear I, like, on that myself. Even but... in between, like from one line reading to another, I go back and forth. But between thinking that his voice in this movie is perfect and like not understanding what the fuck it's supposed to be. Right. Why, why that <laughs> well, choice I, was necessary. BT dubs, uh, Iron Man, Hulk, Prevengers team up y'all. Yeah. Procedural style. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, Robert Downey Jr. is, is, is definitely in his mode that he has mostly had since kiss, kiss, bang, bang. Yeah. Which he, he has so good at it. He has not had a high volume of movies when you really look at it that he's been in since then. But I, I do like the, the, the kind of sloppiness and how you see that character kind of unspool a little bit over the course of years and years. And he's one of the characters that kind of, you know, dips in and out of importance and kind of, uh, you know, without much fanfare, kind of just slides out of the story. I mean, he has, a, you know, another meaty scene, but, he, you know, he just kind of slides out of the picture like so much in the movie. Yeah. I, I, Aside from I, I, obviously Ruffalo and Gyllenhaal, which you know Gyllenhaal kind of increases in importance with Ruffalo our our warm center, but uh, yeah, I, I love how he's played and the choice and the casting choices. I think just for the uh, the supporting the players, density of character actors, the, 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 yeah, just oh my god, such a great roster, and it's almost like just again to bring up the um, um, not the imposter, the informant. Uh, that's one of the things that stood out to me when I when I saw the informant was like, what's such, this is such cool ideas for having you know just even if they just have a couple of lines they show up in a scene or two, just the unusual choices or just the um, you know the decision well, I'm just going to put this comedian in this scene and have them roll with it or whatever. I, I also think that the, the choices for the casting that uh, they brought here even just you know they show up for a couple of scenes Elias Cotadius or. Uh, Dermot Mulroney or uh, James LaGrosse, of, of course, because he's he's always got to come up on the podcast. Yeah, because it is the James LaGrosse Le- Le- podcast. Mm-hmm. I just think that all the they they make their mark, like they do a really good job at uh, sort of contributing to the police procedural conventions that seem to have a that same flow and rhythm that something like the Social Network has. It just gracefully um, keeps going in a way that never feels stale and. To, when people say the movie, you know, feels languid or, or it drags on or it feels too long, I have the complete opposite experience. Well, it's—I mean, it's yeah, it's supposed to be exhausting, but of course, Fincher is so good, as as Ren pointed out, Fincher is so good at making details pop that it it does. It's still very engaging, and I love I love the opening sequence, obviously because it's beautifully shot, the, yeah. you know, out the window and everything. But I that song, I like I do feel that specifically the opening sequence was inspired by thin blue line 
because totally because like the, the way lighting. that not not yeah not the lighting but just also the way facts are presented mm-hmm. where it's we literally only know the barest details of conversation and what is done and it is just like it was the 4th of July they originally went to the burger joint but then they didn't this song was playing on the radio every detail is there not not just to be sort of found, but like very much in front, and every it feels like all the details are turned up to, you know, to turn up to ten, uh, and it's all because, and it's in a way teaching you to read information, especially as sort of things go go darker for them and stuff, and but at the same time, it is a genuinely unscary scene. It's not as scary as the scene by the lake, which again is. Uh, gives the facts of what happened one event at a time and right um and the way that that build is so exciting including the contradictory details of you know the size and you know they casted different actors to play the killer at different times to match the you know the different reports they got so he may be taller or shorter in one scene so they're everything is so like given a reality to these kind of contradicting you know things that they, these guys are trying Absol- to I mean the first time you see the you first time you see the zodiac clearly he is in like a supervillain costume like it is very much you're supposed to be questioning what you're looking at to the point where the first time I saw it I thought it was going to be some I thought that the point of that scene was going to end up being that the zodiac had taken the public consciousness so much that it was some kind of prank you know <laughs> and that like oh people are now dressing up and scaring other people as zodiac like I didn't think it would be him just because the, the supervillain costume he wears, which is Id- identical almost to the costume someone wears on Harvey Birdman. Uh, <laughs> I, can't, I can't remember the name of that character, but like it is so silly <laughs> that it is – again, you're constantly questioning it and you're – and you fall into it. And, that's, and I think that Fincher understands it and what sort of makes this film remarkable is that it can be this black comedy where these characters are cruelly – going about fates that, you know, that will have no, you know, until the very end and only for Graysmith that will have no satisfying conclusion. Um, but it isn't like a, like a Coen Brothers movie where it's only no, taking it's joy in their misery. Funny. Like, like the part where Paul Avery is at the gun range um, and he's missing all the shots and Robert Graysmith is reading about the bat, how people are wearing buttons wearing saying I'm not Paul Avery and then it cuts to Paul Avery wearing one like that's such a human moment like mm-hmm. he really is like he's mocking the characters but he loves the characters at the same time and that's something I think Fincher is almost never given credit for is sort of uh, the humanity of these characters um, he's often seen as very being kind of dark Cold and cynical. And clinical, yeah right but I think this movie is bursting with humanity and it's details like that you know thanks to the because Fincher does not you know, write his own scripts. Like, so, I mean, you have to give credit where credit's due to the uh, screenwriter whose name I cannot see right now, but, uh, it's, and that's part of what makes the movie so great. Even, even once you know, for a fact, like, even if you had knew nothing about the case at a certain point in the film, you know, that there's not going to be any more murder scenes, that things are going to get less tense, not more tense. Mm-hmm. And that you're, and we're abandoning what we thought was a serial killer movie, you know? But that keeps you in because the characters are all so human. Yeah, definitely. I, I also think it's the score is really good in this too. And it was uh, again, he uh, Fincher was incredibly inspired, as well he should be, by two of my favorite movies, The Conversation and All the President's Men, and sort of uh, wanted to evoke 
that score and got in touch with the uh, sound and film editor, Walter Murch, who worked on the conversation. So there's like just elements from, you know, these amazing uh, artistic achievements thrown into this movie that, uh, again, I think give it a lot more uh, credibility and weight in terms of like, uh, you know, some people would just think I'm just going to throw these in here just to throw them in here because I love them. They actually um, add another layer to the story, to the movie, to the themes, to the mood, everything about it. Um, it's just a movie that I think everything works. I don't know. I, I can't think of any th- imperfection to me. What's funny is that if you look at Fincher's hand in it is, uh, you know, Fincher gets a lot of credit and and is known for his camera movement and everything. But if if you watch how he he shoots two people talking, yeah, in Fight Club, in any movie that's not you know maybe Alien Three where everything was fucking low angle, low angle, low angle. But most he I mean he shoots his two shots and he cuts with the emotions and reactions of a scene. You know he has very beautiful, rich photography that kind of amps up these shots. But he shoots dialogue. You know two people in a diner very standardly and Mm -hmm. zodiac is a film that there's a lot you know for him for the volume of screen time that there is there's not a lot of fincher flair i mean you have the montages that are even for him fairly restrained you have a few things like when he's walking through you know the or looking through the 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 beat room and there's all the, the motion graphics and you see all the code and the the clues kind of superimposed on the wall and people are kind of dimensionally walking through that. There's, there's things like that. And you know, the, the CGI time lapses and everything, but he's very sculptural and like almost surgical with, with this movie. It's very, you know, coming off of panic room, which is this symphony of camera movement and camera movement and cross cutting and, and rhythmic editing and everything. Yeah. And then to see this followed up, you know, Ben Button is kind of an outlier in terms of his style, but to see how this ended up, the style that he developed here with his digital cameras and everything, and then to see where he kind of merged that with his commercial style and ended up with the social network, which is kind of something that meets in the middle, it's really interesting just yeah. to, to see what one, he built. Here. One of the only things I really loved about Girl with the Dragon Tattoo was some of the more procedural elements or the, just the. Uh, um, again, maybe it's because I've spent time in psychology labs fumbling through papers and going through all this stuff, you know, all these documents and file folders and what have you that I sort of identify with the um, repetitive obsessiveness of like, oh, I got to go through this and this and this and this and like check out this old file and that old file. Um, that that portion of Zodiac is sort of infused into a uh, girl with a dragon tattoo in, in some in some um in some regards with just like when they're finally piecing things together, that sort of uh, narrative rhythm and editing. Uh, I, I really like that. <laughs> there is no director less afraid of just providing the audience with data. Yeah. Be it on pieces of paper, computer screens, you know, whatever. He is not afraid to lay out some information. Absolutely. And that's, I mean, and that's honestly, I feel what he does best. And that's what, yeah. You know, that's what attention to detail. And that's and I mean, even you, you know, it's not obviously it's not the montage uh, sort of fact based uh, heaviness uh, of something like this or social network. But, you know, even seven yeah. the most effective scenes where they're investigating is all about 
the library what you first see. Too. The well, the library. I think I really those. Like I think those sequences aren't very exciting. I think the, they're not I think exciting, that, but I kind of like that still. I really don't like that scene in, in the library because it's just it because it takes a long time and it isn't to me particularly beautiful and it's like it's something that could have been done a lot shorter without set to. I romanticize libraries whatever, but... and classical music. And I think there's more. Uh, character depth to that scene in seven than there is actual like visual style or acuity of filmmaking. Sure, like you but... get the idea that Morgan Freeman is willing to log the hours and you know where Brad Pitt not, wouldn't necessarily. But yeah, filmmaking wise, I don't see a lot. Um, but no, but like you, they enter a room very pointedly. What's the first thing you see? Air fresheners everywhere. What's the second you see? Thing pile of photographs. Then what do you see? Then the body. Then then the pit, like it's is, and then it's a and building. It is about giving you enough information to sort of. I mean, that's what makes that's what makes the parts of Seven that are great so great is that all of the violence takes place in your mind, and it's because he's giving you this data and he's giving you this information. It's just not in a quote unquote data report bureaucracy kind of format that it is in something like the uh, the you know the uh, litigation of Social Network or. Or all the God, police. the lust killing in seven. Oh I mean, God! Yeah, yeah. The, How hyper just... disturbing without a, a drop of blood. Right. Exactly. How that plays in your mind is so terrifying. And I think that's. I think it's interesting how um, you know we can sort of touch upon seven and a couple of other films really quickly. I, I think it's interesting how that movie. Like as the killings go on, like the last two. Well, obviously the last two, um, but. A couple of them are played very uh, differently. I mean, each each sin is sort of played differently as 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 it goes along, and I think that's a really interesting stylistic choice. Um, on one hand, though, it's it is sort of off putting once John Doe becomes a voice on the telephone, and now I'm because of I'm aware of who Kevin Spacey is. Uh, it's not necessarily like that. Does that doesn't take away from from the effect of his crimes or whatever. But when that movie first came out, especially with that opening credit sequence, I had not seen anything like it before. I mean, obviously that opening credit sequence plays more like a music video, but still it, um, just that kind of serial killer movie combined with the police procedural, just, it was like a horror movie. I mean, obviously a lot of people really gravitated towards silence of the lambs when they first saw it. For some reason I had a disconnect with that movie and I still want to explore that at some point again now that I'm older, but I was really, really disturbed by Seven. And nowadays, um, I do have an issue with Morgan Freeman's approach to, uh, you know, <laughs> resolving the it, what, what happens. His, his well, character. fuck it. Let's hash that out because I, I I want to hear this. Let, let's let's fucking bang this out. This isn't uh I then this is this problem I have. This isn't this isn't necessarily about concept. Um, mm-hmm. I, this is about the way it is executed. Um, Morgan Freeman says maybe twelve words. Like like Morgan Freeman does not say that much in regards to, um, uh, Mills's Brad Pitt's character, right? Yeah. Okay. Yes. He, and regards to Mills and why he shouldn't kill John Doe, he literally just says, "Give me the gun" about three times, and then. Um, and after that, he he spells out for the cheap seats. If you kill him, yeah. he wins. And, I don't like that. And at, at all. that point, <laughs> and then and then it's followed by like a solid like forty five seconds of Brad Pitt like crying. Like 
you you've made the point that you know it wouldn't make sense to try to approach someone who is that emotionally distraught and holding a gun and but it's not like Brad Pitt has gone blind with rage right at that point like this and and again why do you just stop talking why do you say if you kill him he wins and then you just sort of leave it at that at this point why let it literally happen? All you have left to find some kind of meeting is to stop this person. And the only way you can stop this person is to arrest him. And, like, after everything they've been through, he only says, give me the gun, like, three times. And then says, if you kill him, he'll win. Just tackle Brad Pitt if you have to. Not even tackling, but if you had, you know, even quietly low in the soundtrack, all while Brad Pitt is having his emotional breakdown of Morgan Freeman trying to talk him off that ledge, like that would make sense to me. But instead the way it's done is it feels instead to be presentational where instead of, instead of feeling right there with the characters, I feel like this is the part where the screenwriter is presenting a a little conundrum for the audience. Mm -hmm. And it's, and it's very, you know, and it, and it takes me right out of the film, which is unfortunate because it's the climax of the film. Interesting. Agreed. See, I, I, I don't feel like it plays that way. I, 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 I know Morgan Freeman has more lines than that. I mean, he's not in full Sam Jackson negotiator mode, uh, trying to talk him out of it, I guess. But, I mean, I don't know. I feel like he, he's applying as much logic to the situation, talking in character as much as, as I buy. Especially considering that Somerset himself is overwhelmed, you know, with with the complete affirmation of every ounce of nihilism and cynicism that he has mm-hmm. demonstrated. He is now completely faced and overwhelmed with the reality of it. Uh, and, I, and I also, I think he knows from the first moment exactly what's going to happen. Right, well, he, because it's very obvious, because it's the screenwriter wrote that way, I don't think... It is necessarily had to be that way. I think it's presented as if it was inevitable, but I don't think it is inevitable. And my other problem... The character it is. I don't know what else Mills would have ever done. His character is built to be an immature, impulsive, mm-hmm. angry-driven person. But he doesn't... I, but I don't he does, believe but that he stopped, in that But he stops for 45 seconds. Like, he stops for a very long time to cry and point... Like, if he was impulsive, why does he point the gun at John Doe, like, four different times? That's... Like he's like you see him chewing it over. He's still That's... not a murderer, and I think he's also in. I think there's a denial element, and that that's the. If there's anything in that scene that resonates with me, and still to this day kind of affects me, is that struggle he has. The idea that you know John Doe says, "What's going on?" He doesn't believe him, even though he it's clearly true, and that denial and that kind of having to to accept a fact without having seen anything. You know, Somerset has seen the fucking head. You know, he's an, he's a detective. He's faced with shit, terrible things happening. In this instant, he's literally just told that something's happened. And because of what he knows about the circumstances and this human being and this criminal, and he knows it's true, but... You know, it's it's far off, so, it's distant, it's been I, cornered. I mean, this is this at this point, it is just subjectively how we're viewing the characters because this is Indeed. very this is you know this is. But I think one of my larger problems is that I do find the general apathy Somerset finds towards murder 
um, at the beginning of the film. That is scary to me. Yeah. Um, and I find that what is less scary is the idea of someone preaching through murder. Um, and because that is the opposite of it, like someone mugging someone and then stabbing him in the eyes. Was it, it like he talks about happening like four yeah. blocks from the police office? Like that is just senseless. And that is to me the, you know, like the epitome of evil. Whereas what John Doe does is the opposite of that. John Doe is, has something to say and John Doe has meaning behind it. And like, to me, the fact that the ultimate payoff of the film is actually not only not what it was originally so distressing of, of Somerset, but the opposite of it um, kind of kind of hurts the climax. Like, again, it just mm-hmm. it, it's so gimmicky and it is so like which is why I love another reason why I love that Fincher tweaks that in Zodiac so much. It is such a thing that only happens in Hollywood movies that you know that that some killer is like well he's killing with the lunar cycle and it's like yeah i again it feels like the screenwriter is you know is you and know, anytime, pulling the pulling the puppet strings at, at that point the screenwriter is pulling the puppet strings so baldly then he better be saying something profoundly pro you know saying something profound with the themes but he really isn't and that's my problem with the ending i mean that is i mean that's more of a central flaw with the film in general and why I can never get and why even though the power of suggestion is so strong and mm-hmm. Fincher spins this very poppy serial killer movie into something so much more disturbing why I can never fully embrace it yeah I'm cutting to a shot and of Gwyneth I think Paltrow's that's absolutely face. right that <laughs> I don't know. in Zodiac he he, he kind of gets it across that you know all these people are looking for patterns and everything but the idea of an of an insane person following any pattern that any other human being would ever be able to rationalize, you know, or even discover or see, you know, is such a fool's errand because there any pattern or grand James Bond villain scheme they're going to have is going to follow like, you know, the fucked up dream logic that their brain operates by that you'll never be able to piece together. And I think you get a sense of that in Zodiac. Speaking of patterns and lunatics, let's talk about social network, man. Yeah. <laughs> that was the worst. So Red, yeah. No, no, that's about patterns and lunatics. Um, uh, you know, he's patterns. There's pattern in HTML code and no. I, Ren, you, I think I think this was off the air, but it, it may have been on the air. But you you mentioned that you think uh, Social Network is Fincher's uh, masterpiece. Yeah, please go off. I want to hear about absolutely. That. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I actually was able to because I've seen that movie probably half a dozen times. But since you know we were doing this today, I rewatched it today, and and I still feel like that. Where it's it's just the perfect marriage of everything that Fincher has been uh, working for and working towards in his career. Uh, you know, there's a definitely a narrative to to his his filmmaking, and it starts in Alien, which is obviously a, an extremely compromised film. But you see, like, kind of a you know, like he's vomiting out you know all these like hyper stylized techniques and you know it goes away in seven almost like a rubber band and then in fight club it comes back and but the social network you have this beautiful marriage of camera work that's edgy and pointed and precise and the way he cuts a phone conversation for example one of my favorite scenes in the movie and this is something that i've studied 
frame by frame with you know people who know more than I do. Um, the scene between uh, Sean Parker and Mark Zuckerberg at the end of the film when they're having the conversation on the cell phone after Parker's been arrested. If you watch the way they reposition themselves in the frame and the way the cuts go across in terms of where they're at in the conversation and where they're both moving in screen space, it's just symphonic. It's just beautiful and precise. And that hmm. that's true for the whole movie. And then you have this, you know, insanity of making litigation and depositions entertaining. And a lot of that that's is That's what I like is Sorkin. I mean, that you got to lay a lot of that at Sorkin's feet. And, and for- there's something I, I I didn't even sort of realize until uh, I read it in a, a Film Crit Hulk article. Film, he, he mentioned that, uh, he, he mentioned that, like, part of what makes Social Network so compelling is that Fincher is able to sort of pull down, like, Sorkin has a tendency to have people be too wordy and too clever. Like, a lot of things, same things that, you know, Joss Whedon gets criticized for are too preachy. Um, and, like, but because Fincher is, you know, has such a such a specific tone, he's able to sort of pull down these very, you know, f- clever lines and root them in like a real almost like sadness. And <laughs> um, which is, and I, it's almost like a perfect marriage, which you wouldn't necessarily think with Sorkin because uh, because Sorkin tends to be so true blue and preachy where Fincher tends to be uh, not, you know, not that. Yeah, I think it's interesting that these two uh, collaborated in a way. I mean, uh, just because, uh, you know, Aaron Sorkin has that sort of insane fast quip that I always seem to like in, in, in some instances with uh, with screenplays, especially when characters think fast, speak fast, and have a lot of confidence in, in you know, what they're trying to say, and they can back up, you know, a lot of... of of what they're thinking and feeling with just the right things to say. And um, the only thing, again, is sometimes with Sorkin, I haven't watched the entirety of West Wing or uh, some of his other uh, shows and whatnot, but he he always has a moment or two that rubs me the wrong way. And I don't think, like, the you know, just spelling it out in terms of the, uh, you know, the, the line at the end of the movie about not being an asshole is necessary. I think to, you know, just have that implied or at least allow the audience to recognize that on their own without a character sort of, you know, spelling that fact out is something so, that turns me off. Jim, do you are you saying that you agree that the that Zuckerberg is not an asshole? Hmm. Are you saying you agree with because you're saying that what you don't like about that line is that it spells it out? Whereas the audience should find that out for themselves. So, do you say that you would, you would agree with that line? Well, it's more of just because I that, my problem with inter- that line is that I don't agree with it. I think he is an asshole. Well, no, no, that's that is what I'm trying to say too. But I just don't think even saying it either way, if he's an asshole or not an asshole, just to sort of have a character in the movie spell out his you know his personality to the audience is something that I don't necessarily respond to i mean maybe another person can watch it and not think he's an asshole um but i definitely think he's you know he's he's a narcissist he's self-absorbed i think he, he he does things that are very despicable he betrays his best friend um he he does come across as an asshole i disagree with what she says but i also disagree with the choice to have I that spelled out ren 
Uh, well, I, I, my perspective is always a little off because uh, I, I think I empathize with Zuckerberg as presented in this film more than than some people do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I feel like, you know, in terms of what he does to Eduardo, I don't feel like that's as an atrocious and I don't feel like that's such an atrocity like that, you know, it's it's a demonstrative of his utter and lack of moral character because he's responding impetuously in the same way that Eduardo was to incited in the first place. Um, and I mean, it's one of those things that what I like about the movie is that Sorkin and Fincher both uh, kind of dispatched with reality a little bit. Because if you know anything sure. about Zuckerberg in, in real life and kind of the real story of Facebook and where it deviates from the film, the the whole motivation that they that they give Zuckerberg for everything is, is largely an invention of the screenplay. And, and, and that's, and that's fine. Like, no, that's fine. Which is good. Like it's, it's like someone has the same complaint about Zodiac. Zodiac definitely um, twists how it presents facts and the order that they are presented in order to advance its thesis. Yeah. Which is exactly what you should be doing as a filmmaker. Like that's certainly not. Uh, that's certainly I don't think a, a valid complaint. Um, I, I I remember a conversation I had recently about um, since so many people are ignorant of history or whatever do you and people will look at movies and assume that they are historically accurate do filmmakers have a responsibility to not miseducate that no yeah, they, exactly. have a, they have a responsibility to tell a good story that's what that's exactly how i feel inter- about it. entertaining because there is no objective truth obtainable yes. by a film ever in any circumstances every camera angle is editorial. You can't point a camera mm-hmm. at something and it not be editorial because it, at the end of the day, you're excising information by and you're putting filter- shit in you're a filtering box. it through so many different people: the writer and the director, uh, you know, editors. I mean, they all they all play a role in how a character, you know, as as he goes along throughout the movie is perceived. I guess the only potential downside is the actual people. Uh, you know, in real life that are being portrayed in the movie might take issue with it or might feel like, well, that is completely inaccurate and they have the right to sort of say that. And for us to say, well, what, you know, is that such a bad thing? I don't think so. I, I mean, in terms of obviously if you're making a documentary, that's a completely different uh, story. And even that I disagree. Is still, and <laughs> I disagree. It's a completely different story. No, I think I, it's a. I think it's a different process. I don't think it's no. It's a different process. That's I guess how, that's what I meant to say. Because even then, that is also filtered through subjectivity. Just the documentary approach, like Dear Zachary, is not going to be a hundred percent accurate. Yeah, like that dude's still alive, right? <laughs> <laughs> I saw that guy. That no, he that was, was chilling with Elvis and Andy, and <laughs> that was Jimmy Rashomon coming out right. again. Yeah. Okay. Uh, can we talk about the <laughs> fucking nightmare that is Benjamin Button? I don't. I'm excited to. about this conversation. Okay, it makes me sad. Ren, go ahead and start. Well, I'll say this, and it's because uh, 72 hours ago, um, I, I would have been on board the train we're talking about here, uh, because when I did my first rewatch for the first time that we were going to record this podcast before. <laughs> by the way, readers, I fucked all this up. Uh, Jim and, and Pat have been very nice about not throwing me under the bus, but I am 100% the cause of the delay of this episode. 
But in that first run of, of rewatches, I skipped Ben Button and uh, Zodiac out of time just because I didn't. I had seen them, so I rewatched them uh, in the last two days since we had a little extra time. And I found like before then, I would have trash talked Benjamin Button till the cows came home with the best of them. Like oh. I have given that movie so much shit, and I even have published pieces about it. Um, but having watched it this last time, I actually found myself appreciating it on a number of levels that I, I did not before. Um, at the at the end of the day, I'll still say there is a core of hack work that I attribute attribute almost entirely to uh, the screenwriter, yes. which Eric Roth, right? That, that's Roth. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, who obviously has written some brilliant screenplays. The Insider, uh, Munich. Uh, indeed. Uh, but rewriting Forrest Gump in the 40s is not one of them. Um, that said, I think Fincher did actually do a lot of really brilliant shit and found some beautiful stuff in this film. And there were there were things that I was loath to, to credit the film with a couple, you know, before yesterday that I, I, I now have to admit do kind of, I think, function. Like what? But... Hmm. Uh, well, a number of things. For uh, my biggest complaint used to be that uh, this film's core reason for being, which is telling the story of a man aging backwards, uh, doesn't mean dick in the film itself. In that his the gimmick of what he's going through has little or no relation to this shaggy dog tale of a guy going through his life and having shit happen to him. Uh, what I found watching it again was that there are actually, and I think they're all built in a lot largely to the filmmaking and uh, to the performance that Brad Pitt puts across. There's a lot more to be mined in uh, kind of the idea of this man who has experienced all of this death and uh, basically a man living his life, not aging backwards, but living his life with zero fear of death. Having all of the, the this death front-loaded for him and growing up in an environment where people died constantly, hmm. what, viewing it through that lens and seeing how he reacts to people, knowing that they're more transient in his life, is interesting and takes him a, kind of a step beyond just a guy that shit happens to, which is how I used to feel about it. And that is, I, I will grant that that's something I can relate to because I, I had a lot of death in my family when I was a young dude, like, you know, before I was, say, 10 years old. But I, 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 that didn't really resonate with me in that fashion. I just felt like in the context of the film, there is some of that. And uh, There's I don't definitely know, like something term- there. I'm not saying that there's nothing there. I just, I think the execution in of itself, it feels, <sighs> everything about it feels tedious to me and stale and not, I mean... You, if you want well, here's here's the thing. Uh, this is what I think encapsulated. Like, we have this story where this story is being told to us by a woman, and you have that fucking annoying thing where you have to keep cutting back to that. Yeah. And like hearing, you know, you get pulled out of the story. But what I do like is that it's um, juxtaposing Ben's experience of of no fear of death with this woman who is dying and her daughter who clearly has no handle on that and doesn't you know have that same experience and is having all this shit kind of revealed for her 
So like even that conceit, I pulled more from. Mm-hmm. I just wish I had but an emotional connection to what takes I mean, place. This isn't what I. This isn't what I mean. This is not the lens through which I first viewed it. So I, you right. know, I I've only seen it the one time, and it's possible I'm making things, and it's been a while since I even saw it. So forgive me if I get details wrong, but that doesn't like. Yes, he grows up in a nursing home. That is a fact. Mm-hmm. But like, there aren't like I'm trying. I'm struggling to think of a single big scene where or several where it's where death is suddenly like real to him well i i gotta say you just gotta rewatch it because it's the first 45 minutes of the movie is just perpetually backdropped by characters dying but it, it doesn't seem to mean anything that he just said yeah. people would go and people would come and more people would come like that's not that that's not how you do drama where you where if a movie you know, if death is the main theme of the film, then you have to make that dramatic. You can't. And the problem with Benjamin Button is nothing is dramatic because he is such a cipher. There's yeah, and it's where, almost like too internalized. Forrest Gump is like he's a cipher, but that's how you experience America. I mean, Forrest Gump has his own horrible problems, but you could sort of Meh. defend Forrest Gump being everyone to every everything to everyone. This you know, in a being there kind of way, like Benjamin Button there's nothing dramatic that happens because he doesn't have any personality. Right. Exactly. And we are expected to care about him falling in love with this other person whose personality we know nothing about. And like the salty sea captain has personality, but for the (laughs) most part, most of everyone we see in this movie, we is just a cipher. And none of that death to me is made dramatic. It, It is just fact. Yeah. That's not, and it's flat and and i just and to me this feels like fincher a project landed where fincher could play with technology and storytelling and maybe he could win an oscar which would grant him even more clout to continue to do whatever he wants which is his main and he just sort of he was interested in making something pretty and in make and in fucking around with CGI, which I mean, you know, again, this is very subjective. I don't think any of the aging stuff has aged has ironically has aged very well. Um, <laughs> I, I, got, I I I don't know. I always feel, find your your visual uh, interpretations a little uh, spotty. Like we don't agree on things like and that's that and that's often. that's that's completely fair. I mean, especially given that. I am literally. I, I gotta say, I was impressed I, with how well it is held up. Like I, there was maybe a shot where I thought things were a little off when I rewatched. I, think I don't think is, it's bad. I just I, don't think it's in service I, of much. Well, yeah, there's that, and there's also I think one of maybe one of my main hangups in I'm, I'm just describing it wrong. It isn't that the CGI is low quality. It is that the CGI is done, um, is done in a way that we know that it is CGI, like. Everyone knows what Brad Pitt looks like, so everyone knows that that any any time you see his face and it's on the little person on the little body, and then <laughs> you know it's CGI, and there is always that disconnect. Whereas, look at you know say something like Zodiac, we don't because it you know that street had, that had all the blue screens you know held up all around, so he could project the neighborhood past it. We, you know, that is seamless because we're not looking for it. Um, whereas literally we're spending the first hour of a movie looking at something that we know is not real. And 
and it doesn't matter if it's the best CGI in the world. We just uh, ob- objectively know it's not real. And again, if it's spectacle, if it's fucking you know King Kong, that's something different, right? But if it's but if you're trying to tell a human story, but uh, but everything is disconnected in that it feels way, feels inhuman. And and then also the fact that there's not a lot of character. Like I would even be more for the CGI if Benjamin Button had more of a character to be invested in. So sure. in saying the CGI hasn't aged well uh, is probably a misnomer because it implies that the CGI is poorly done or that I regularly see better CGI elsewhere. It is more that uh, it is not utilized well. I certainly wouldn't have. Li- I would have liked to have seen uh, Charlie Kaufman's draft of this. To see what he would have brought out in this oh, story. Was he, was he originally he, re- he wrote He wrote a draft of, of the adapted screenplay at one point. Which would I be would be very, very interested to see that. Yeah. Because yeah. it, it, it does frustrate me at the core that this is still a guy who grows up in a big southern home where people come in and out of it. And he has a very, you know, loving, attentive southern mother, has a handicap, uh, eventually gets past it, goes through the world is influenced by these characters instead of a feather there's a fucking hummingbird <laughs> instead of vietnam there's world war Two. he then comes back home mom dies he has this you know girlfriend that he's kind of into and is part of their childhood but then they spread off and go their own paths the girl has an artistic experience and only comes back to him when she's punished by life and has that spirit and 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 artism or artism that's not a word uh has that stolen from her like it, there's a weird thing in these two rothian screenplays where the the female character only comes around you know has to have their the life they want to live ripped from them right I'm just, they're, they, like they're they're punished. they are they're punished <laughs> for being part of like the singing the swinging like 30s or right? i'm just like, dis- you i'm just disappointed AIDS, that you're or if you you know are a hippie, you're going to get AIDS and die. Right. And if you don't love Ben Button and go off and live your own you know artistic life and have experiences with different people, well, then you're going to get hit by a car and realize you have to be with this person. I um, might have liked so this movie more core, if, if. Go ahead, you, I'm sorry. Oh, that's okay. I was just about to make a dumb joke. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. but the thing is, if I had to obliterate this or Forrest Gump off the face of the earth, I would probably kick Forrest Gump into the sun. Oh, I completely disagree. Reagan era fucking pandering bullshit. Oh. No, I like I, I, I do. I, I love always feel that. sad when people don't like Forrest Gump. It's a bad. No, no, no make no mistake. It's a bad movie. But, yeah. but Forrest I Gump mean, it's beautifully made. It's iconic. And, you know, I grew up with it. So at the end of the day, I can fucking watch the movie and enjoy it. But I much prefer to him meeting the president to say in this movie where there just happened to be near Cape Canaveral when uh, a shuttle goes off or, you know, there he's a part of world war two, but kind of on the outskirts of it. I kind of like how the historical context is, is woven into to this much better than the fucking trite obviousness of Forrest Gump. But and he, I does, feel but that he Forrest, doesn't say I, magic legs. And I feel that, <laughs> I feel that as trite as it is and as offensive as uh, as the Reaganism is, at least it has, like, a driving force and some kind of purpose. And it is it has some kind of reason to exist, and I feel like Benjamin Button has no reason to exist other what than... What would that be? Mm. I'm curious. It, has a, it is an exploration of America. 
It, yeah. it is a bad one, but it it has an ethos, you know. <laughs> to, to quote <laughs> to quote Walter Judging, it's like at least it's you know say what you will about Forrest Gump, at least it has a fucking ethos. Like Benjamin mm-hmm. Button feels it's just like it is nearly three hours of just aimless nothing. Yeah, I don't know. I, I would I would say that the the presence of death, the fear of aging, the 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 way in which one cannot plan their their life in a way that will be respected by the universe is as much a strong a driving force and maybe more potent than let's go through the fucking pop culture highlights of of America in you know the six the, the late sixties or whatever. Um. Also, Forrest Gump. Again, Forrest Gump is also never, ever expected to be the devil's advocate for Ben Button. I know. In- I, just, I laugh. And I understand smile that. I, no, no, that's Gump. that's what I was going to say. The other thing is, Forrest Gump is often funny, and yeah. Benjamin Button is never funny. Absolutely. So that that alone makes it to me like more endearing and easy to sit through. I will never. I mean, I may sit through Benjamin Button again if I get a wild hair up my ass and I want to test this sort of idea of looking at it as someone who grew up with death, but. Uh, I probably will not do that. I probably will never watch Benjamin Button again because it's I fucking hate it so much. Uh, well, like I said, I I I mean I am legendary for ranting against that fucking movie. No, I understand. And watching it again, like I I, I in spite of myself, I found myself kind of kind of digging it, or at least understand. Like I can totally give David Fincher the benefit of the doubt of why he took on that project as more than just a cynical chance to play with a bunch of money and get Oscars and do... Like, I see the true humanity and the way he shoots, uh, you know, the way his style does come out in montages of relationships. Sure. I think he captures some really potent, uh, relatable shit. Like, for like for example, I, I dated an actress. So when Benjamin goes to see her and he goes backstage and he meets her and he spends some time with her... He sees her in her environment like that. That all is so true. Like the 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 emotions he's feeling, the way she's feeling, the that juxtaposition of two different lives. That that's something very real. That uh, you know, I don't know who felt that at what place that it ended up in the movie, but that's some real shit. You know, <laughs> you, you know what I mean. Like they're and then when uh, they finally do get together and there's the montage of them building their house and everything. That's not an experience I've had. But it resonates. It feels real and like an actual relationship that I'm watching. So I feel like, you know, Fincher gets a lot of shit. Like I even used to say, you know, the the social network works because this cold hearted, calculated director finally merged with this, you know, humanist, very uh, potent human screenwriter to, you know, in this perfect concert. And I don't know my and this is true for my entire rewatch of his filmography. I think there's a lot more heart in Fincher's work than he's ever really given credit for. I'll agree. I'll yeah. agree with that. No, um, definitely. It's interesting just going through, uh, you know, the majority of his films. I didn't get to rewatch Alien, but I, I certainly feel a, a stronger, greater appreciation. I flipped on for Alien. Him. I flipped on Alien Three. I used to be a pretty staunch Alien Three defender, and now I realize it's almost entirely because it was the. I first. was kind of indifferent. To I, it. I I realize now it's almost entirely because it was the first one I saw. Mm. Um, it is, 
It, it I is mean, a compromised movie. Well, well, I mean, fucking Fincher walked out during the editing, and you can say, well, you can't blame Fincher that it's a mistake. I'm like, well, Fincher shouldn't have walked out during the editing, but yeah, it's regardless. He it should have taken the project in the first place, right? It's 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 a it's a bad it's a bad movie, and the assembly cut is also a bad movie. Just I'll think- say, I watched the pan. I watched Panic Room for the first time. That mm-hmm. was the one Fincher film I had not seen, and oh, then wow. I watched it the first time, and I fucking loved it. I yeah. don't know if that will hold up. But I loved it. Uh, aside I think from it becomes a, few... a pretty conventional movie by the third act. I mean, it's obviously the See, setup. See, that's where I loved it the most because yeah. I love how it switches. You know, it switches their place with them in the room and sure. outside of it. I think that's a brilliant way of, you know, jazzing up this you know one note concept. I there are, like I hate the. I don't think the last shot works. I think mm-hmm. some of his, a few of his filmmaking tricks are are, are, are overwrought. But overall, and I mean, I think Whitaker's great, and Yoke's sure. great, and I, I fucking hate Jodie Foster, and I, you know, whoa, I still like... Whoa, 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 now. Whoa, 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 <laughs> Where... Hate? Contact, man. It's it's all... Contact. Oh! God, you're killing me. Can we have you Should on we... the Zemeckis episode? Cause, you can be on the con cause, side. Because Jim, Jim defends every Zemeckis movie. His favorite movie of all time Except, is Christmas uh, Carol. Shut up. <laughs> no, not, not Christmas Carol. <laughs> but, no, but Jim Jim defends Zemeckis more yeah, than, than he should. Yeah, I do. Very much. And I hate Jodie Foster's voice in that movie what? so much that it it's like nails on a fucking chalkboard. <laughs> and the same with Silence of the Lambs. Like, I love Silence of the Lambs. Are you sure you're not thinking of Nell? <laughs> what, what, do you, what do you hate about her voice? Her accent is you know terrible. What? You know what, Jim? You know what? For, for every 400 bad puns you make, sometimes you fucking pull nails on fucking Nell reference. Oh, God bless you, Jim. <laughs> yeah. No, her voice is kind of annoying in Nell. <laughs> <laughs> Let's uh, give our top three Fincher films, guys. All right. Uh, Jim, go first. Oh, wow. I get to go first. I switched it up on you. Nice. Didn't even see me coming. Now I can't uh, dictate based <laughs> on other people's opinions. No, Red, I got it. it? I, I'll go. I can go. I can okay. go. I can go. I can do it. I can do it. I can do it. Number one is Zodiac. No pressure, Jim. Number two is... Oh, you better do this Fight right. Club. Ah, no. <laughs> Number three... I'm gonna go with Social Network. I think it's fun. Yeah, Ren. Uh, my number one would definitely be Social Network. I think my number two would be Fight Club, and then Zodiac would probably be number three. All right, and for me, uh, surprise, surprise, I think I'm doing the same as Jim. I think my number one is Zodiac. Um, number two is uh, Fight Club, and my number three is uh, Social Network. Woohoo! Well, Ren, thank you so much. Uh-huh. Yeah. Again, you can you can uh, you can read Ren's writing on uh, Chud dot com, where he'll be sure to give you all the updates on I don't know whenever the big movies are for December. <laughs> what's what's hey what's Ren? The, what's coming now? How's my fall looking, Ren? I mean, my God, what a year we have! The Master from Paul Thomas, oh. we got Looper from Ryan Johnson, we got Django from Tarantino, we got Prometheus from Ridley Scott, we got Cosmopolis from Cronenberg. We got Lawless from Hillcoat. We've got, uh, you know, Gangster Squad from Fleischer. We've got Kill Them Softly from uh, Andrew Dominic. I can't handle this. This is just Um, too good. This is like 2007, 99. Avengers is still out there. Uh, It's it's a fucking... 
banner year. It really is. A banner year which is the Avengers. And, and, and we don't even know all the, you know, and I heard the, the newest Wes Anderson movie's great. Uh, I've heard a lot of yeah. good things about stuff yeah. coming out of Cannes, you know, so uh, apparently. Be, I don't know if. Um... Spike Lee? Oh, that's right. Red Red Hook. Uh, yeah, I, it doesn't look good, but he made one. Red Hook Redemption? Um, no, not Red Hook Redemption. Red Hook Summer. Oh. Red Hook Summer. There we go. Uh, uh, were apparently but... Michael Haneke made like a really touching movie. Which yeah. Is, oh wow! Like I heard that the... ants. It's about old people, right? Um. So uh, I mean, it's shit. gonna be a great year, and uh, Ren knows his shit. So when you when you need the movie news, go over to Chud and see what he's got to say. Um. You can also follow Ren, I believe, on at Ren Brown at on Twitter. Yeah, for sure. And uh, if I can throw out a quick plug, this summer, this June, oh, I'm that's gonna right. be on the road. Absolutely. Um. With uh, if anybody's ever read about uh, these guys who do like Aliens on Ice or uh, the old Murder House Theater, they take 80s and 90s blockbusters and turn them into what Wired magazine called lo-fi love notes. Um, we're going on tour with our Jurassic Park show uh, this nice. June. Um, so hit old Murder House Theater, and that's theater with a T R E at the end. dot com, and uh, you get the Facebook page and everything and find tickets we're going to be all over the country in june so find a show and go to it because it's going to be a fucking blast absolutely I, I can't wait you guys are coming to chicago and the theater you're coming to is actually right in my neck and right in my neighborhood so i can't wait yeah, to see yeah, it myself. i guess i'm going to be coming to that there. too yeah definitely Maybe we can record a bonus episode or something i would i would love to interview the, the people at the old murder house theater can we um, do a bonus episode on contact <laughs> We could sure. <laughs> we need to get coffee after the show and like just hash that shit out. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Sounds Thank good. you guys for having me on again. Absolutely. Thanks, Ren. It was and great. You can follow me at Patrick Rapole. You can follow me at Instant Jim. You can uh, read my film journal at Martha Marcy Nash and Young. Yeah, come com. find come find. Uh, I'm sorry, <laughs> not dot com. Dot is dot wordpress dot com. Oh yeah, and you can come find me at Letterboxd. I've been writing very half-assed reviews there. Yeah. <laughs> um, and visit our website at directorsclubpodcast.com. Email us, directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. Yeah, thanks everybody for all the emails we've been getting. Really appreciate it. Uh, join us in probably like 10 days since we're recording uh, Memorial Day uh, next week. We're recording a very special episode with uh, Steve Procopi, uh, also known as Capone at Aiden Cool News, on probably my favorite director paul thomas anderson yeah it's gonna be a nice. great episode i'm i'm very excited about myself personally so uh yeah. be sure to tune into that we've got more bonus content coming your way you guys really responded to the superheroes episode and i thank you so much for that yeah and uh check out the uh andrew davis interview as well which yes I, that was great I, I didn't mean to, i meant to tell you because i, I yeah, finally really cool. listened to it he was a really nice guy yeah great great conversation I hope he comes back to Chicago and makes another movie. That's kind of like the thing I was thinking afterwards. I'm like, damn, that guy's cool. I want him to come back. So, yeah. All right, everybody. So stay tuned uh, to the website, and we'll see you in about a week or so with Paul Thomas Anderson. Let's have barbed wire going in someone's pussy. Like, it's like... <laughs> ugh, like, like, no, that's, that has, there's no Freudian element to barbed wire going in a pussy.
don't bogart the nachos. <laughs> Put the headphones in, Jim. You're about to miss a life-changing song. It sucks! <laughs> <laughs>